VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, August the 24th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout in the queue on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Lads in the control booth, as much as I appreciate a musical interlude, I can hear the musical bed underneath me talking. David, can you hear that? The music is still playing under me. Anyway, there we go. All good. I want to wish uh, good luck and mention one more time, local athlete Alex Ryan. He recently won a gold medal at the Canadian Karate Championships. That was a couple months ago. He's competing this week, Saturday, in Santiago, Chile, in the Pan American Karate Championship. He's the only person from Newfoundland and Labrador in the competition. So good luck, Alex, building on a gold medal at the Nationals. And for the Toronto Maple Leaf fans that are amongst us, I guess breathing a sigh of relief. I don't know, Ben Murphy's a big Leaf sign out there. And Austin Matthews, their star goal scorer, he got paid. $53 million extension over the course of four years. Highest paid player in the National Hockey League. Annual salary, $13.25 million. It was Colorado superstar Nathan McKinnon was the highest paid player last year. 12.6 on the half. So Matthews got paid. And of course, he's got the resume. No question. He's going to get this kind of money. But when the Maple Leafs have about 50% of their payroll tied up in four players. Anyway, Leafs fans, there you go. All right. Really admire the courage and the drive and the adventurous spirit of folks like, for instance, local here, T.A. Loeffler. But it was four years ago today that American explorer Victor Viscova, get a load of this, Victor Viscova became the first man since the invention of the submersible to visit the deepest points in all five of the world's oceans when he touched down in the Malloy Deep, about 100 miles west of Sfard in the Arctic Ocean. He went down in the DSV limiting factor, and we're, of course, all painfully aware of the story regarding the submersible, the Titan. In doing so, he became the first man to touch the two magnetic poles, climb the seven summits, which are the highest mountains on every continent, the five deeps, and outer space when he rode in Blue Origin beyond the atmosphere on the 4th of June in 2021. That's some adventurous spirit tied up in Mr. Vescovo. Anyway, let's go. Sticking with some adventure. So it is a bit of adventure if you want to take your bike out for a whirl around the city. Or I suppose anywhere here in the Northeast Avalon. The traffic is really congested, people are aggressive and reckless in many times, so the concept of a shared-use trail has been controversial. It's worked in other places, and I think it can work here. The City of St. John's releasing some feedback about the concept of the shared-use trail. Nothing really that we haven't heard before. There was concerns about the levels of consultation and some of the proposed shared-use trailways. You know, people will have the obvious worries, and if you want to bring your concerns, your pro or cons of the shared-use path, you can talk about it here. And just curiously, as I was scrolling through my social media feed, this weekend is the Dutch Grand Prix. So in the Netherlands, when we talk about bike-friendly, You know, it depends what index you look at as they measure the happiest countries in the world. Some of those indexes are a little bit ridiculous, but the Netherlands is always way up there. There are 17 million people living in the Netherlands. There's 22 million bikes. So when you talk about shared use, there you go. All right, this is an interesting story, and it's not the biggest one, but when we talk about safety and marine Atlantic in general, an interesting story being brought forward by some of the folks in the trucking industry. If you're a commercial truck driver, you get an automatic berth. Now, there were some concerns during the pandemic about sharing berths and all the rest of us sharing cabins. 
But when you have a double-wide trailer, you have to have a pilot driver or an escort. And they're regulated by Transport Canada, just like the commercial truck driver themselves, have a required amount of rest where they're not behind the wheel, but they don't qualify automatically for a berth when uh, traveling on Marine Atlantic. I know that will only pertain to X number of people, but it causes all sorts of delays if they have to get off the ferry, go to a hotel so the pilot driver can get the required rest. Then it comes with all sorts of delays and concerns. And I just thought it was an interesting story as we lead into more Marine Atlantic related matters. I'm a little bit surprised that we haven't heard any reaction from anyone in the province, certainly not on this program, nor have we heard any reaction from our federal liberal members of parliament. And I think most importantly would be the Minister of Rural Economic Development, Goody Hutchings, because one of the concepts that's been brought forward many, many times over many, many decades is the concept of connecting Labrador to the island. There's been all kinds of reports done. Most recently, a new engineering company named Arup came in and really kind of toppled some of the work that was done in 2018 by Hatch Engineering. They updated a study that was done in 2004. So the most recent numbers, even if you just in, uh, use uh, the impact of inflation, the numbers were going to grow. Of course, we all know the under and understand the inflationary pressures. But now that fixed link, it comes with double the price tag, an additional couple of years to, uh, to build. They also talk about forecasted travel, you know, distances that would, uh, truck drivers in particular would have to travel to validate Hatch's estimations. They say $45 million in operating revenue each year. Arab says no. Arab says it looks like a $10 million operating loss each and every year. Now, how accurate would either of the forecasts be? I don't know. But when they talk about the time and the distance traveled to avoid Marine Atlantic to use the fixed link, you know, that's a commercial traffic issue. No question. People on the Great Northern Peninsula or maybe right across the island, certainly the population of Labrador, see the benefit economically and societally and cost-related matters. But I wonder where the federal government comes down on this, because they have quoted, uh, said that this is a nation-building exercise, put it in the hands of the Canada Infrastructure Bank, and yet with these updated numbers on a project that they said is a priority for them, adopted out of policy convention in the hands of the Infrastructure Bank, no reaction to the updated numbers. A little bit curious. It doesn't even include the $3 billion required in the province of Quebec to complete Route 138, nor does it include any of the required highway upgrades if and when the traffic is what is forecast, whether we're using Hatch's numbers or Arab's numbers, what would need it to be done on the Great Northern Peninsula to accommodate an increased flow of traffic. So maybe we can get some reaction from Minister Hutchings because that would have direct relations to her fact that she's the member for Long Range Mountains and the Minister for Rural Economic Development, but no reaction to these updated numbers, which I find to be interesting. And if you're a just everyday citizen like myself and want to chime in on what you've heard on that front, we can talk about it. Got an email from a flag person overnight. Road work season is in full swing. And yes, it's frustrating to be stuck in traffic and sometimes for quite lengthy uh, periods of time as you wait for equipment to get out of the way or whatever the case may be. And the flag persons are the messenger. They have a walkie-talkie and they're told by supervisors on the site or recognizing what's happening with the moving of equipment or what have you, and they're simply doing their job. So this one flag person said, over the course of the last couple of weeks, the frustration's gone from dirty looks and the sticking up of the middle fingers to all-out taunts, including the fact that someone threw a coffee at them 
in a not in a solid cup that you bring from home, but in a takeaway. And of course, then he ends up covered in coffee. I wonder what he did with it. He didn't report it to anybody, nor law enforcement or what have you. But they're just the messengers. So just what he wanted me to remind you, and I thought that was a healthy thing to do. Okay. Yesterday, the province gave us an update regarding daycare. And yes, there's some good news to be reported therein. And we, let's just have a quick look at the numbers. The daycare issue is massive. It just really truly is. So now they say that there's about 8,300 childcare spaces operating at $10 a day or lower. 820 of those spaces were created last year. They're talking about there's 18 pre-kindergarten sites now open across the province, 17 more to open next year. That will add an additional 600 total spaces to the program. There's 63 providers in whatever stage are trying to open their not-for-profit child care center. 25 of those being in the metro region, uh, 14 sites in central and the east, 25 in the west and in Labrador. There is money being dangled for uh, francophone uh, trained early childhood educators. They've added some 100 early childhood educators to the workforce. The total there is about 1,200. But here's what we don't know. And Minister Howell, Minister of Education yesterday said, they have some anecdotal numbers about just how many people are waiting. We know that there's vast majorities of the province are what they call a daycare desert. So it's hard to know whether or not the reconfiguration of the pay ban for early childhood educators, the speed with which they're trying to open up more spaces, including in pre-kindergarten, if we don't know or we're not going to be told exactly how many people are waiting, including people who are pregnant, I mean, just imagine the anxiety in your first trimester, haven't even told all your family and friends yet, and you've got yourself booked on a wait list for a childcare space. So when we try to measure whether or not a policy or a program works, we've got to know things like how many people are waiting. There's only one way to measure success, and that's to accommodate wait lists, whether it be in surgical backlogs or daycare spaces or anything else under the sun. People waiting for mental health treatment or services, addiction services, which we'll get to again. So even if it's anecdotal, I guess governments take that opportunity to not put the entirety of the picture on the table because then we all have the ability to measure and check, the be- check off the boxes and whether or not thresholds and milestones have been met or achieved. So how many are waiting? Even if it's anecdotal, let's just get a number because it's not impossible to get a number. With all of the regulated and unregulated childcare spaces, they could very easily via email or a telephone call tell you just how many people they have on their own individual wait list. Now, there may indeed be some redundancies. There might be families that are on multiple wait lists taking the opportunity whether or not to be to drive to CBS from St. John's or to drive to Mount Pearl from Torbay or to drive from Grand Falls to Gander. People are willing to do what it takes to uh, daycare space so they can get back to work, notably. So can we get an anecdotal number? And it's not all about feet to the fire and criticizing for the sake of. It's just wondering or not we're on the right track and we're going to accommodate what is a distinct need. And even some of the conversations about if you can't afford to stay home and take care of your children, then don't have children. That's a bit of a throwaway thing to say. I mean, no longer is it possible, for the most part, unless you have a real high earner, like a doctor or an engineer or someone who, uh, being the primary earner so someone can stay home with that luxury of staying home to take care of your children, because the day is gone. We're on one middle class or median salary. You can have a home and a vehicle and afford all the necessities of life, including groceries and your bills and your insurance and your cell phone and all the rest of it. So people need to get to work. People want to work for the most part. You know what I'm saying? So it'd be nice to have a little bit more to consider in that daycare conversation. Okay. 
Making reference to the rally that took place yesterday on Confederation Hill regarding mental health and addictions services. To begin with, it's easy to understand that people who attended, especially those who addiction has hit them where it hurts the most, that resulted in overdose, death, suicide, whatever the case may be. So I by no means have any interest in pushing back against their raw emotion because it's obviously palpable and very real. So whether it be their grief, frustration, anger, whatever the case may be, their voices need to be heard, and then we can have hopefully rational conversations about what they're saying, policies they propose, and whether or not it works. So whether it be in the envelope of criminal justice, which has long been the go-to regarding addictions in particular, and whether it be how healthcare plays a role. But there's one concept that's being promoted that I think is worthy of discussion. And it's not in an effort to say, you're absolutely wrong, we cannot pursue or peruse it. Let's just talk about it. It's the concept of, you know, involuntarily being brought in for treatment. So it's happening in certain parts of the United States, for instance. They're looking at it in the province of Alberta. There is very limited research out there to show that it works at all. And so how do we speak about this concept? If we know, and I think we do, that unless you want help, you're not going to absorb the help. Unless you have trust in the system, you're not going to avail of the system. Not everybody that's using a drug has a so-called problem with the drug. You know, there's people out there who are recreational users who have dropped dead because of the presence of fentanyl and cocaine. So how does it even work? I know someone or my son or daughter is using, so you get to go before a judge and have them committed involuntarily. Does that result in any adequate, realistic, positive outcomes in bucking the addiction. And the research is unclear or unavailable or doesn't point to any positive outcome signs. I think the big one is whether or not you trust the system. We try to be careful in talking about access to services and treatment because when we paint the picture that is so dire and bleak that you cannot get help, People hear that and consequently maybe think, well, you know what? I'm not going to jump through hoops. I'm not going to be waiting forever in a day. I'm not going to get in line. My addiction is killing me today. And maybe the thought might enter their minds, well, there is no help. But there is. The timeliness is questionable. Assessment periods are problematic. But the concept of forcing someone to get treatment involuntarily, is that worth pursuing? Or is it about expanding opportunities for treatment, decreasing wait times? And that would be throughout the province, not just in the massive urban centers like the city of St. John's. So I know that's tricky, and by no means am I interested in downplaying the families and the people who spoke at Confederation Building yesterday with their obvious grief, because those raw emotions are indisputable and have to be acknowledged and understood. But how we proceed with those who are addicted today, those who need mental health services today, involuntarily capturing, confining people to get something they don't want, which probably means it won't work. So, I mean, I hear from one brave fella, and he's joined us on this program. He says that concept, I'll leave his name out of it, unless you would like to call and expand on it again today. He says that concept would have killed him. So that's a pretty bold statement, and he knows himself best. But that, I, I get where they're coming from, but... And very quickly, before we get to the break, and hopefully your call, 
You know, in the world of criminal justice, we've heard from some of the advocates and people who are outspoken on how policing works and hiring practices, and whether it be the expansion of the RNC footprint across the province. But I think that civilian oversight conversation really requires more fleshing out. And I know the minister responsible, John Hogan, says he doesn't have a bias one way or the other. They've got a 10-person team struck with a budget of about a million dollars to look at how it works in different jurisdictions, some hybrid models, police service boards versus all-out civilian oversight. Fair enough, but I do think that additional layer for the public and law enforcement is pretty important. And yes, getting it right is always important, but if you want to take that on, we can do it. And there's so many different things we can talk about, and the content and the topic, as you know, is entirely up to you. And we will talk about the issue uh, regarding the 99 vacancies in the field of social work. They get lost in the shuffle. They're not just talking about child protection. It's in education and health care and criminal justice and across the gamut. It's at the cancer care treatment centers and otherwise. So we're going to tackle that and whatever's on your mind. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. And when we come back, oh, let's start off with talking about the social worker vacancies. The uh, organization representing the social workers is NAEP. I think for the most part it's NAEP anyway. Their president, Jerry Oler, will fill in the blanks right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, we're told there's about 371 social workers in the department. And if we know that there's 99 vacancies, that means about 20% of the department's social work positions are vacant. And that'd be the Department of Children, Seniors, and Social Development. Join us on line number one is the president at NAEP. That's Jerry Earle. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, to you and your listeners, and thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. You know, my thoughts on the matter yesterday when I spoke to it was this kind of gets lost in the shuffle because we talk about doctors and nurses and LPNs and nurse practitioners and all the rest of the clinicians important in the healthcare and education and criminal justice system, but social workers somehow fall under the radar, yet their work is critically important. What do we know about the vacancies and what led to the 99 vacancies that we currently have? And Patty, first of all, for your comments, most people don't realize the value of social workers in our society in general across the province. Because what we're talking about here is CSSD, but as you mentioned earlier, we have social workers in other areas. These vacancies are extremely concerning. We started raising the alarm uh, just before the pandemic because we had done a survey of our social workers, both in ELF and both in CSSD, uh, and the reports that came back were quite alarming. We presented them. We put a work in place, group in place, uh, and I believe, and the social workers believe, that some of the things that they brought forward, we would not be, because we're in a sheer crisis right now uh, with social workers. Like I said, these workers do incredible work. Uh, they make critical decisions every day that impact the lives of Newfoundlanders and Labradorans and vulnerable Newfoundlanders and Labradorans. In this case, we're talking about children and youth. Uh, so they deal with some pretty incredibly serious situations and make a difference in people's lives. So they're challenged uh, with the shortages now to be able to do what they need to do. Uh, we know that a review identified with a full workload of social workers, they should be carrying a caseload of no more than around 20 cases. So you can imagine with almost 22, 24% vacancy rate, the workload that's put on the remaining social workers and the impact on their ability to be able to do their job, they're extremely stressed knowing that they can't. Uh, and the problem is we have to figure out a way to stop uh, the bleed, uh, to 
stop losing social workers and keep the ones we have. I've said this in a number of other professions recently to yourself and others in the media. We can't afford to lose one more professional. We certainly cannot afford to lose another social worker in CSSD. No, no question. The external review of a number of years ago that talked about 52 hours a week, 20 cases per person, yeah. that number's grown. No question about it. Oh. During the pandemic and all the pressures we see on the various systems, there's no doubt in my mind that those numbers have grown, whether it be hours per week or cases. So now we're suggesting that the 20-case workload has now become somewhere in the neighborhood of 60. When you add in the traumatic situations that they intervene with, the Absolutely. difficult situations their clients would find themselves in, the amount of paperwork, because I speak to social workers, they say they know they've got to have accurate reporting, they know there's going to be a certain amount of paperwork, but they're bombarded with paperwork. So 60 cases, like we talked about 24-hour shifts for correctional officers, 24-hour shifts for registered nurses. There's no way anyone can do their best with that amount of time on the job. A 60-case workload is not only unmanageable, but some of the people they're dealing with are by no means getting the services that they need, and the social worker would like to provide, but simply humanly can't. Absolutely. And and talking about the workload, I had a social worker reach out to me the other night after one of the initial interviews said, I'm only reading this now, Jerry. First of all, thank you. Uh, But it was around 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and I'm not sure how many successive days working and just getting home from. uh, And and again, most don't realize the stressful work that these social workers do. They work in an extremely stressful environment, going into situations that are stressful themselves. So, uh, and, and just talk about one thing you just mentioned like some simple solutions there, some of the supportive roles to social workers because there's a shortage in other areas that impacts because they have to do required documentation. It's required by policy and procedure and legislation. Uh, in a certain area, there's a clerk position that's short, for example. The excuse that the position is not filled is that they don't have an identification number for the position. Now, I'm sure some of the 800 bureaucrats in government or somebody in uh, CSD can find a job identification number to fill that position. This this has been going on for months, and it's unbelievable. And that's that's like a, a support position because they all work as teams, like the social worker assistants, the social workers, the clerical staff. But once any person in a team is missing, the social worker picks it all up on top of the caseload. And when we just talked about the caseload they carry, it mightn't sound like a lot to some 20, but in a week, uh, that actually, from a report that was done, actually says that would take 52 hours work to complete. Uh, that's not counting out putting other work on top of them. So uh, we wish uh, things had changed radically when social workers brought forward these issues some time ago. Uh, we wish we were in a position to be able to implement the changes, but it's government, CSS and regional health authority, well, the provincial authority on the healthcare side now, that would have to do these things. Social workers can only keep bringing forward the issues they feel they're not listened to, they feel they're not supported, and I absolutely agree with them, uh, that they are not listened to, because they bring forward all kinds of solutions. Some are fairly simple, uh, but we're into a situation where now we have a very complex one, because trying to fill 99 vacancies in an environment where we know that the workload is immense and the stress is immense, trying to convince the social worker to go to work in that environment. Because again, I just heard from a, a social worker experience one saying, Jerry, I was sitting in my office listening to the social worker in the office, a young social worker just started crying before she even started work that day, already looking for another job. And the social worker in the office next to that social worker has already found another job. Uh, so people, additional social workers are looking to get out. So I'd suggest the department, they have to start 
start paying attention today. They can't wait any longer. They should have before this. Deal with the issues there. Support your social workers. That doesn't cost anything to support your social workers and let them know that they are supported. But that's a, that's a feeling that they got. They are not. And it came loud and clear from our social workers. Yeah, value and respect comes with knowing exactly what they do, which is, I think, kind of lost in some of the conversations that we have here. Uh, It'd be nice to know what the retention issue has meant, whether it be how many people have retired or found new jobs or left the province based on workload, stress, what have you, just so you know, an exit interview, so we know exactly what's going on, so we can attend to it a little bit more clear. Add to the complexities of it, I'm told by social workers that so many new grads find themselves in some of the most difficult positions, like child protection. So no question the burnout is real. You don't even really have your feet under you, and you're dealing with the, probably the most difficult files at the department. Very quickly, let's get on to months uh, school of social work how many seats there I'm not sure the exact number, but I can certainly get that data for you. Uh, we had a group that was looking at, and that was one of the things that was suggested from social workers, trying to increase the number of seats. But those graduating, you have to get to them early. You can't wait till they're about to graduate. And we said to other professionals to recruit them to CSSD, but you're going to have to do, entice them in some way. Again, a young social worker that's in the program right now uh, commented on one of our posts. They said, if government would help me get through this program, I'd be willing to sign on and go to work. So we've been talking to the government about retention issues that we got to get creative, that we got to be able to say to Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are in various programs here, including social work. We're prepared to do this for you if you'll come work with us. But what happens there, we wait till people are walking out the door of a graduating class uh, and somebody else has already got them recruited. Well, we've seen it already in various disciplines. And because, you know, it's easy enough to talk about healthcare professionals, but the social workers will be working across multiple portfolios. You know, if you go to the cancer care center, social workers involved, criminal justice, social worker, the health system, social workers, education, same thing. And so it's a maybe we need to know more about social workers so that it could be more front of mind for listeners and possibly politicians, because sometimes I get the distinct feeling that maybe we come up a little short because of the lack of understanding about who does what and the importance of one person or another in various roles, whether it be in the fishery, healthcare, education, or otherwise, because sometimes it feels like it's right there in front of you, but we just don't get down to the brass tacks. Uh, Last one, when we talk about recruitment, do we happen to know, just like what we would hope would be active engagement with anybody sitting in any discipline training school here in gaps that we already have, whether or not the recruitment conversation starts the day your bum hits the seat for the very first time and happens throughout your training. Do we know how it works with social workers? Unfortunately, with social workers and most professionals, that's where uh, I would say most employers, especially on the the public sector side, they fail. Uh, Even we've heard that in other professions. Like I said, it seems like they wait until the person graduates and seeks employment rather than what a number of people do or businesses do. Actually, they go looking to recruit while they know people are at their bumps in those seats. So that's what we have been lobbying as part of our retention strategy with social workers and others. Don't wait until they're walking out the door to graduate. You know there's classes taking place in our public colleges and our public university here in Newfoundland Labrador. You know where those classes are. Have people go in and start to recruit. Like you just said, from the moment those classes fill this September, October, we should be talking to social workers and correction officers and paramedics and licensed practical nurses about coming to work in these sectors, not waiting until they have multiple job offers. uh, And you can imagine now getting a job offer to go and see a Steve versus maybe somewhere else. Uh, 
it's going to be really difficult once you've made up your mind you're going elsewhere. They're being attracted outside the province as well. Like we graduate uh, incredible social workers in Newfoundland Labrador from the program, and they're sought out in other parts of the country, not just Newfoundland Labrador. That's one of those conversations that needs some federal guidance. If we just have bidding wars for professionals, we're going to sink each other. It's just a, it, there's no victory available unless you are the province with the deepest pockets willing to incur additional debts simply to sign professionals to work in various systems, most importantly healthcare. Uh, Jerry, appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for this. No, I think, Patty, and on that comment, we've had that dreary conversation with several ministers say we got to stop this interprovincial competition. we got to find a way where we're not – it's bad enough to be competing with North America or other parts of the world, but when we got province robbing from province, uh, that's causing a major problem. That it is. Appreciate the time, Jerry. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's uh, Nate, President Jerry. Before we get to the break, let's see if we get some news coming from the West Coast out in Stephenville. Sean Hickey's a local business owner. Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind this morning. How you doing? First time caller. Welcome to the show. Um, I got a few notes, I guess, uh, about the airport. Carl Diamond formed a number company in June twenty to June two thousand twenty two. The company number was one three two six four seven nine three. Carl Diamond has formed a new numbered company in June of two thousand twenty three one five one three two five seven three eight into which Carl Diamond is only a director of this company. So who owns the company? Well, just for that, for clarification there, and I know you probably know this as a local business owner, I can have a company designate myself the director and can be the sole owner and proprietor. So it's just a formality to call yourself a director. You don't have to qualify yourself as the owner. Yep. So anyway, on Monday, the mayor uh, met with the SAC board, um, and he's proposed a new deal under this new company that they're not going to be making drones, so that'll be off the table. He's not obligated to run it as an airport off the table. He's not obligated to keep the staff off the the table. So no one knows who owns the airport now, but you just clarified that, right? And a key point here, Patty, in September of last year, John Risley met with the Chamber of Commerce and the Downtown Business Association and said if the deal goes south, He will pay all the staff and operating costs to keep the airport alive and is crucial to the windmill project, which this man is spending millions, millions of dollars into our community. And the mayor didn't even tell the SAC board about this deal. And when questioned, he said they don't need to explore the new options. The $10 million that he promised the town of Stephenville, uh, him and the deputy mayor announced that there would be a corporate guarantee. The lawyer said that this is not worth the paper that it was written on, and this has been taken off the deal. Hmm. The lighting project for the runway uh, has been taken off the new deal, which probably is going to be passed on to the taxpayers at a cost of $1.3 million. There's too much unknowns in this deal, two years and still nothing done. Mr. Rose said in a council meeting a month ago, any day now, any day, I said the only the only one I know of is Ronnie Millsap's song, Nothing to Do with the Airport. Even though in a bad financial situation and municipal affairs needs to get involved, this is why we have councillors voting on airport projects. Their son is an employee of Carl Diamond's, and she's in conflict of interest and millions in debt with nothing to show for it. I've been in business for 38 years, self-employed, and the bottom line is is a scam since day one and has to stop. The mayor and the most of the council have a champagne diet on a beer budget, and you can't spend $2 when you make one. 
and only Councillor Lenny Tiller has voted against any monies flowing to the airport while this tries to get worked out. So, Sean, let me make sure that I heard everything you said. Yep. Off the table is the drone manufacturing, these large cargo drones, largest in the world. That's gone. Gone is the requirement to operate it as an airport. Gone is the proposed updated lighting system for the runway. And I would imagine the $10 million and the fire hall issues and all those things. So everything's off the table. So what is on the table? To, to give him the airport, you know, that the taxpayers of Stephenville own for $6.76, you know, uh, the council has rolled off a half a million dollars worth of taxes. You know, I think council needs to go back to the table. I mean, if all this is uh, off the table, I mean, we have a man with a billion dollars, you know, setting up in Stephenville with the windmills. He's offered to take the airport. So if this, if Mr. Diamond takes the airport and he's not going to run it as an airport, what like, what is the big secret? What is what are they going to do with the airport? If John Risley wants to take the airport and pay for the staff and run it, why isn't this an option? Why is this a one-man show? We have four new councillors. And, I mean, anybody who volunteers their time at, for council or whatever, great. But when you got four new ones have never been there before, and they're told what to vote on, you know, like, it's totally ridiculous. I mean, we got a mayor who's got three barns built, who uh, put in three permits for three barns, got eviction orders for two and a half years, and nothing has been done with, and there's three houses up there. Like, he can do whatever he wants in this town, and he's getting away with it. And nobody seems to want to deal with it. I wrote municipal affairs, and they told me I had to go through the town, but somebody's got to get involved. We have a multi-million dollar asset at our airport that needs to be run as an airport, not to give it to somebody else. What are they going to do with it? If, he, if he's got, he doesn't have to run it as an airport off the table. And like we're told nothing as the people of Stephenville. I've been a taxpayer in this town for 38 years. I've been a self-employed businessman and successful at it at the stage of retiring. But my kids are coming up. I mean, what are they going to have to pay? Like two years ago, we had $1.4 million in the bank in the town of Stephenville. Now we are $1.8 million in the hole. So where's the money gone? The only thing we got is a, is a, a playground that's $300,000 over budget. You know, the mayor goes to Germany for five days and got a $900 cell phone bill. I go to Florida for six months, and my, it costs me an extra $75. Somebody has to get in control of what's going on in the town of Stephenville. No question. Sean, I was unaware of these new revelations coming from the town. For the longest while, we tried to talk about the airport, and we've had Mr. Diamond on the program and Mayor Rose. The optimism was palpable, but it always felt unrealistic. So I also have an opportunity to reach out to Mr. Diamond. I'm going to do both, and hopefully we can get at least the mayor today to talk about these up this updated information. I really appreciate you bringing it to my attention. Just one more thing sure. before I go. Like I spoke to two councillors this morning, and they knew nothing about this deal. But the mayor has been to the SAC meeting on Monday and said, we got to get this done, get this done. Now, it's held up by the lawyers, but I hope by the grace of God that somebody stops this deal and gives this to John Risley. At least we'd have something. I mean, this man is spending millions of dollars in, in town. Whether we're for or against the windmills, Stephenville has been a dying town. I mean, like, we're, you know, we're at a population now of $6,500. I've been in business for 38 years, and I've seen it steady decline. We've got a multi-million dollar water system that there's been no maintenance on since 2014, and we were plugged into the town of Kippens for water for the last year. 
and Mr. Rose gets on live your show and tells people that we got the infrastructure to handle 30,000 people when we, we can't provide water for the 6,500 people that are here? Like, something has to happen, and it has to happen soon before our biggest asset. That's the problem with most of Newfoundland, like, you know, the previous governments or whatever, that all our assets were gave away. But, I mean, we have a big asset, and we need to keep it. And John Risley wants to take it and keep our staff and keep it as an airport. I think somebody has to get involved. Sean, really appreciate your time as a first-time caller. Follow-up guaranteed. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sean. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Now that's something. Love the pessimism has been right there and the skepticism right from day one and now with so many of the things that were the keys to the investment and the ownership uh, manufacturing drones keep it as an airport runway lighting system upgrade attention to the fire hall all that kind of stuff gone so what's left we'll see if we get the mayor on right away don't go away Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Keith Fitzpatrick. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay, sir. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad. Listen, right off the bat, we appreciated you making time for us uh, last week, I guess it was, and sharing your story on social media, and now picked up by the national press. Has this been helpful to you personally, or has it been additional pressure that's been a bit difficult to deal with? Uh at times, it can be a bit of pressure, but honestly, I look at it as uh, I have the ability to speak. Like, I don't have anyone I have to report to a job or anything, and there's lots of us who can't. Lots of us have careers that if they get public about being, you know, in recovery or a former addict or whatnot, uh, they could lose those jobs, right? That's right. And then we have people on the streets that don't have the ability of going online and posting or calling into open line or talking to CBC that are suffering and they don't have a voice so if i can help in any way then i want to well and i think it's going to be beneficial to people who are listening and people dealing with similar life situations whether it be themselves or someone they love so like i don't know if you heard what i said off the top of the show about you know whether it be forced involuntary confinement and treatment and people would like to refer to it as compassionate involuntary care it's a discussion worth having and how I tried to couch it off the top is I'm in I'm not in the business of mocking or taking people to task who are suffering they're grieving their emotions are bubbling over they're angry but the conversation is important so your thoughts are very clear on the matter and there's very little research to show that any of this involuntary treatment even works so what are your thoughts from people Approach that issue, that approach to addictions. I understand the pain that's going on, especially with you know poor Ben's mom and the other parents who were at that rally. You you could hear you could hear the anguish and the grief in all of them, and they want changes, and so do I. So does everybody that's in the recovery community, whether it's harm reduction or people at twelve step meetings or doctors or psychiatrists. Like we all want the system to get better because the system is broke. You should be able to go to detox immediately when you want help. You know, we all want these things. But the whole idea of locking someone up because apparently they don't have the right to choose, uh, it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't work. Uh, there has been some studies in the U.S. especially about it that talks about that uh, uh, a research review of nine different studies said, you know, five of them found there was no change. 
no change in their activities when they got out. If they were into crime, they continued being into crime. Uh, two studies found that people got worse and they died. And two studies found that there was a small benefit in short-term recovery with an average time frame of about 72 days before people went back out. And people who were locked up against their will in Massachusetts are double the chance of death from a fatal overdose versus someone who uh, voluntarily goes in. You know, we can't force recovery. Uh, I've seen it happen when I was at Humboldt myself. A young lady was brought in against her will, and she literally made life in that facility a disaster for those of us who were there because we wanted to be disrupting classes, disrupting instructors, arguing, picking fights, even trying self-harm things, which was triggering the people in the room, in, in the, the rehab, because she didn't want to be there. She had no intentions on being there. You know, and she, she didn't get any help. And those of us who were there trying to get help had four days that we were all pretty miserable. For the individual, I think you're spot on with how you say will impact you, for instance, who wants help versus someone who does not want help and has been taken against their will and forced into a treatment. And then I think it's got issues regarding the trust in the system. If someone knows that, you know, there's the possibility if anybody catches wind of their using that they may indeed be brought in forcibly, then they don't trust the system. Without trusting the system, the help can't work. So maybe people will just use in silence and hide it from their friends and hide it from their family in full. And before before too long, they may indeed be a lost cause or someone with their broken spirit and their lack of trust in the system. That will have a spiraling effect throughout the community. So I just that's don't, I, I get where they're coming from because they're, they're sad, they're grieving, they're angry. And that's why I try to have the conversation is not about who said that. Let's just talk about the concept because, yeah. you know, glad that we're having more and more conversations. I'm glad there's been some meat applied to the bone. If the meat doesn't lead to better policy, better spending or investment, however people like the couch it, then we can't go down that, that path based on grief. We just have to have the conversation maturely and openly. That's the thing, right? Like when, group happen, when grief happens, of course, uh, rational thought kind of goes out the door, right? Yep. We all know that because I've suffered grief and I haven't acted very rationally in my grief at times. But we need to look at this in how do we help and not harm, right? If we're, we're outing people as addicts and going to drag them to places to get them the help that they need, which, you know, they, they do need it. Uh, but are we causing more harm? Like most people who suffer addictions already have trauma. So now you're going to add more trauma by locking them up against their will to try to get that help. When the system can't even help those of us who want help now. Like there is no six week wait time for Humberwood. It's longer. Except in the instance of a pregnant woman. They try to get them in immediately because, you know, the, for the health of the baby and the mom. But uh, I haven't heard of anyone getting into Humberwood in less than eight weeks. And I've heard other stories of it being 10, 11, 12 weeks. Like, if we don't have availability for people who, want, who actually want the help now, where are we putting all the people we're forcing in? <laughs> That's the other thing. That there's not the beds for those of us who actually want to go get help. So then you're going to attack in people who are forced against their will. Like, we need this discussion on addictions treatment and substance use disorder treatment. We need to fix the system. We need the bed capacity. We need the ability that, okay, I'm using today. I can go to a detox center. I can get a bed immediately. 
and a referral can go into a rehab facility. I can spend five to 10 days at a detox and then get moved to rehab versus, all right, you need to go home and wait two months and then we'll send you to rehab because that time frame of that two months, there is a pretty good chance you're gonna go out and relapse and you're gonna use and there's a good chance you're gonna die. Like we need that, we need less wait times. We need more beds, less wait times. We need to lock some kits everywhere. What Newfoundland Embassy is doing in Metro is beautiful. Having those kits all over George Street, all over all the bar districts. And we need we need to, to talk about it. We, we need ability to get safe supplies, like needles and things, in more places than just a hospital. Like Swap in St. John's has it, Thrive in St. John's, I do believe, have it. But outside of Metro, it doesn't exist unless you're willing to go into a hospital. And that stigma is still there for addictions. You go in and you feel like you're getting looked at like you're less than human. And that doesn't help anybody to want to get help. Keith, I'm glad you got the help, and I'm glad you sound well, and I hope you are well. And, you know, it's the personal stories that are just so helpful. Policy and the headlines and 100,000 feet above sea level helps paint the picture, but it doesn't fill in all the blanks, doesn't give it any texture or context. So I'm glad you're uh, doing that for us. I really appreciate you making time for us again this morning. Oh, anytime, Patty. It's my pleasure to be able to at least bring a voice of someone who's tried to live the life and uh, sound recovery, but... It wasn't easy to find because the province system is broken. I will agree with all the grieving parents. The system is broken right now. We just need to go about fixing it the right way to help and not harm people. I appreciate this. Uh, be well. Stay in touch. You too. Thank you. Okay, buddy. All Have the best. Bye-bye. Bye. And look, I, I, there will be people, people say, you know, safe supplies, uh, uh, safe injection sites, what have you, and we're enabling folks. Well, not, it's, it's, I don't think so. I mean, if you look at the playgrounds with needles versus whether or not those needles could be put in a safe depository at a safe injection site, or fewer people get hepatitis because they share the dirty needles, or fewer people end up in hospital with those types of illnesses because we know the cost, not only for dollars and cents, but the cost individually to their families and to their friends. Because what we've been doing over the years didn't work. So when it doesn't work, it's time to fix it. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about teacher shortages. Where? Lab West. Jordan Brown is the NDP member for that district. We'll talk to him after this. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Let's more to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Jordan, you're on the air. Thank you, Patty, for having me this morning. Pleasure. Yes. Oh, I just I was discussed there. I know you had the uh, Trent Langdon on there yesterday, uh, discussing about some of the issues of back to school, and he did touch on, um, you know, hinted towards that there were some issues in Labrador West. But I, I'll go further. Um, so right now, from what I've been told from uh, the uh, people in the system, is that we're looking at a shortage of 9.5 teaching units. So I don't know, you know, the the, the system, you know, 0.5 of a teacher, but you know, that is one full individual. So there's about 10 physical teachers we will be short now this coming uh, this coming system from uh, you know uh, from last year where we all were also short teachers again we're going to be short again this year but this time it seems to be a bit more significant than last year okay so uh, give us an idea some people will understand teaching units and that like and there's such a thing as a half a unit so how many teachers would be a full complement in lab west how many are currently in place 
currently in place where we're, we're like every I think is, is we're right now we're short nine. So out of the entire uh, population of three schools, um, this is not including the French system. Uh, this is just the English uh, school board. Uh, right now we have we are short. So there's nine. There'll be nine physical uh, sorry, ten physical teachers that will be short. That will that would that would make up a full complement. That's not including you know the shortage of uh, substitutes. Well, I don't even have a number on that yet of what we're going to be short there. But as of just full time teaching uh, teachers, uh, we're, we're going to be short ten. Is there a difference in the approach to uh, recruiting teachers for? I know there's you know some tax credits for uh, the remoteness of some certain parts of the country, but is there anything else out there? Because we've talked about additional incentives in healthcare, and Trent Langdon and others say, well, we don't even talk about teacher shortages with the same tone of urgency. So, is there a difference in how we recruit in places like Lab West? Well, I'll tell you this. So, from my understanding uh, of this past year, um, you know, all these positions were interviewed. There was people interviewed for the entirety of it, uh, but once they found out, realized like some of these people that were interviewing for some of these positions found out, you know, housing is not affordable in Labrador. Um, you know, a, a student just out of uh, Mun, well, they can't afford a three hundred thousand dollar mortgage for a for a seventy year old house. So once they realized that they couldn't really find a, an adequate place to live, most of them backed out. So this is the problem here, is that it. It's the actual, like, you know, economics of, uh, you know, the lack of, you know, urgency from the government to actually deal with some of the issues that I've been saying since I've been calling you for before I was even elected, that, you know, the, you know, lack of urgency to actually address some of the housing issues and the recruitment issues and actually put in some actual, you know, things in place to actually keep people in uh, areas like Labrador. So, you know... the teachers is just one of the you know one of the many issues you know we can talk I could take this exact conversation and translate it to healthcare workers I could take this exact conversation and translate it to uh, public servants that are up here it's a lack of you know really any work by this current government to actually deal with the situation at hand how do you do that I mean because we I think we all have similar thoughts on it and whether it be federal provincial or municipal politicians talk about cost of living issues housing related matters and the overarching uh, comment is we need to do better we need to do more we need to bring prices down how does that happen well first of all I could say the crux of the biggest issue up here is housing right now I have 27 applications on a wait list for Newfoundland Labrador housing 27 I've been saying that we've been I've been asking for housing up here since 2019 I've been begging Newfoundland Labrador housing to add stock to Newfoundland Labrador housing since 2019 they have yet to do it actually we're short two units now because two burned and they yet to re- they have yet to rebuild them that was two years ago now so if I can get the 27 people housed that's a big start then if I can get you know Newfoundland Labrador housing to help uh, to after the you know multiple times that the the federal government uh, turn down the applications by the seniors up here to build a 40-unit seniors apartment complex. That's 40 more units in this region. I can start bringing in housing and bringing down the cost of housing once we have supply up. That's just two projects that are, you know, public-funded, public projects, you know, to have, you know, affordable housing. If I can get those two projects in, Patty, that will bring down significantly. But I can't even convince government to spend money on actually doing their job. I can't convince Newfoundland Labor Housing to spend money to actually increase units. Instead, they'd rather sit there with a wait list of 27 people. The crux of the biggest issue up here is affordable housing, and government sat on their hands for the last number of years and won't do anything about it. And and there's other issues. I mean, it's not just that. Some of it is about whether or not people want to live in certain parts of the province or certain parts of the country. So let's just, you know, hypotheticals are hard, difficult conversations to have in realistic fashion. But let's uh, say the affordability came back to earth. 
is there a thought that maybe some people simply don't want to work that far away from certain other amenities and the cost of traveling in and out? Can everything and everything, uh, pardon me, uh, everything that's of a concern of yours with healthcare professionals, public service teachers, simply be addressed with housing because the remote nature, and it's not just Labrador. I think you look across the country. Those conversations, proximity to healthcare, proximity to amenities, is really driving the urbanization of the country. It's not lack of care and understanding the, the importance of rural Canada, it's that amenities and healthcare and things like that are easily satisfied in larger centres. So can we even realistically just deal with housing and think that's a sales issue? Your right thoughts? Now, right now, so for, for my conversations with people who were, live here, people who recently moved here, and people who've left here, and people who want to move here. And of all those conversations, the biggest thing is housing. The biggest thing is affordable housing. A lot of people would come up here and work in this area if they could afford to actually live up here, like in a house. A majority of what, like this is here. Now, translate that to the North Coast of Labrador, a little bit of a different conversation. Let's be fair there. Um, a bit more complex. But just let's, we're just going to talk about Lab West here. Right now, I have a, I have a, a center. Of, there's over 10,000 people live in Labrador West. We're not like a little outport. We're not a little community. We're a fairly large community. Right now, the biggest problem is that people have physically cannot get an apartment building. There's not a single apartment to rent. We have vacancy of zero. So right now, that is the biggest their driver. I have people that do want to live in Labrador. They say they, they, they've been here before, they visit, or they've lived here in the past. They want to come back. They just can't get in the door. I have people here that actually work in the public service, Patty, that actually have taken jobs, showed up here, stayed with a friend for a while, figured that, oh, well, you know, I'll stay with my buddy. We'll, I'll work it out, and I'll find an apartment. They were here for over a year. They had to quit their public service job and leave the region because they just couldn't get housing. People actually showed up here to work and had to leave because of housing. So I think the biggest crux of the issue, the biggest complexity of it is housing. I have nurses, doctors, people that want to come up here, but they just can't get a house. So there's people that want to come here. It's just that someone's sitting on their hands and refusing to do something about the situation. Understood. And I asked that question on purpose just to get your your thoughts as a resident of the area. I have to take a, a quick break here for the news, but would you like to have a final comment before we say goodbye, Jordan? Yeah, I just want to say, like, you know, when it comes back to the teaching issue and the teacher issue is I asked them for an update about three months ago. Never got back. Crickets. I've asked the minister's office for an update. Crickets. And now at the at, you know on the eleventh hour they're telling us there's going to be a shortage this coming year. I think uh, when it, it was disingenuous, and I think it was very uh, you know that they didn't bother to actually reach out to the member for the area to actually ask for like you know assistance on trying to figure out this issue. Instead, they're just going to let kids suffer this coming school year. And I think that the minister owes the people of Labor West a big apology. Appreciate your time, Jordan. Thanks for this. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Jordan Brown is the NDP member for. Labrador West. Okay, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we'll talk about whatever's on your mind. Do not go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to Calgary. On line number one, say good morning to the founder and medical director of the IUD and uh, the Northeast Female Health Clinic. That's Dr. Rapinder Tor. Dr. Tor, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I'm calling from Calgary, and I called last week, uh, if you remember, I um, have started a petition to make birth control free across the country. If your listeners might be aware that it's happened in British Columbia. Um, and the reason we're sort of asking for this is a couple of sort of merit policies to, um, to the policy. One is that, you know, when we talk about free birth control, your listeners might be wondering how much that might cost taxpayers. Um, and the good news is it actually saves money. So lots of studies have shown that for every dollar 
that we invest in birth control, it saves up to $9 in the public sector. So it's like with anything with health, you know, prevention is always going to be cheaper than um, dealing with the consequences. So obviously, you know, birth control is going to be cheaper than trying to manage an unintended pregnancy. So there's lots of economic benefits and certainly social benefits as well. You know, this is something that it really just gives, you know, every Canadian access to an empowered life, you know, reproductive life plan. So, you know, that question of, you know, when do you want to get pregnant? How important is it for you not to be pregnant? You know, we feel that every Canadian should be able to live through that plan and cost shouldn't be an issue. We find that, you know, the most popular forms of birth control right now um, are not the most effective, but they are the cheapest. And so we know cost is an issue. BC passed this in April, and we know that in that province, you know, uh, demand has really soared. So, you know, this is a very popular policy. It's been talked about a lot. The reason that we're going for it at a federal level uh, is that, you know, reproductive rights are human rights. So they really should be protected federally. This shouldn't be up for negotiation every time there's a change in provincial government. Um, And sometimes, you know, we get comfortable where we are, but we just need to look south of the border to the U.S. to see that some of these rights are being restricted. And so I think, you know, it's important for us to think about who we are as Canadians um, and what policies reflect that. And, you know, we've had a poll that shows 83% of Canadians, you know, approve of free prescription birth control across Canada. Seven in 10 feel it's an urgent issue. Um, And we're really excited about this petition because it's the first time that the public has had a chance to weigh in on the topic. You know, like I said, it's been talked at policy uh, levels, um, uh, you know, often. Um, And, you know, we just want to remind your listeners, so tomorrow, Friday, August 25th, is the last full day to sign it. The petition will close early on Saturday morning. We're already sitting at about, you know, 8,500 signatures, and I would love it if we could get to the 10,000 mark. And so what I'm going to ask your listeners, you know, if this is something, you know, we talked about affordability and, you know, how difficult it is for families sometimes to really, you know, afford the things that they need. Birth control shouldn't be a luxury item. It should not depend on how much money you have in your bank account or where you live in the country for you to access that free of charge. Um, And so the petition closes tomorrow with the last full day. So I would encourage all of your listeners to, you know, think about signing that petition. It only takes a couple of minutes. You can go on the um, government website, it's petition E456. So you can just search for, you know, petition contraception Canada and it should show up. Um, and, you know, oftentimes people who can get pregnant sort of understand, you know, they've had some lived experiences of having to pay for that. And so they're often people who will go and sign. But, you know, the way we see it, you're either somebody who can get pregnant or you're somebody who can get somebody pregnant. And either way, you know, this is something that's a shared responsibility. So we encourage, you know, even men to step up and sign this petition, not necessarily for themselves, but for the people that they love. Um, and youth can sign this as well. You don't have to be um, uh, 18 as long as you have an email address you can also make your voice heard um, since I spoke to you last week you know we have had a, a nice sort of increase in some of the numbers in Newfoundland but I would love my friends there to you know be champions for this cause we only have a day left and we really do want to take a strong show of support to the government we are hoping that on World Contraception Day which is September 26 that they will make a member statement affirming this policy and we just need you know everyone's help to make this happen so I'm hoping your listeners will get a chance it only takes a couple of minutes to just make their voices heard. Um, you can also find it on our website, so projectempower.ca, and I think um, your producer was saying they could put it on the, on your socials as well. Yeah, we can. I, I've, hopefully I get this quote right. It's from you, so if I butcher it, please let me know. 
Birth control is a women's issue. It's a men's issue. It's a youth issue. It's something that affects everybody. So I'll put that out there. And the federal guidance on this, I think, is important because when we talk about health care and a piecemeal approach based on political attitudes, one province to another, we're probably getting it wrong. In Ontario, I think it's strange. And again, correct me if I'm wrong. I think their con- contraception prescriptions fully covered only, only up to the age of 25. Do you have any understanding as to why that is the way it is? Because an unintended pregnancy or pregnancy period can happen well past the age of 25. Yeah, no, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to do who might be most at risk or where can we save money. Now, what they did in BC, when they looked at that, they thought if we just, you know, uh, covered the people who were 25 and under, how much money would we save? They found they would save more money if they made it more accessible to more people. So I think your point is right that, you know, you know, pregnancy or the risk of an unintended pregnancy does not stop at age 25. Obviously, that's something, you know, for most people who can get pregnant, that fertility risk is going to be there for 30 years of their lifetime. And without birth control, we know that, you know, in the developing world where there's no, let's say, um, efforts made to reduce pregnancy at all, you know, that a person who can get pregnant will have 10 to 15 pregnancies in their lifetime. You know, maybe only eight will survive that first year. But that is kind of what we're up against. And so, you know, as you know, humans, we do need to think about birth control. Otherwise, you know, it is going to be a lot of pregnancies and that might not be what people want. Um, and your listeners might be surprised to hear that, you know, 40% of pregnancies in Canada are unintended and one in five pregnancies ends in an abortion. And we're spending about $320 million just in direct health care costs dealing with unintended pregnancies. So that would include, you know, any kind of doctor's visit, prenatal care, delivery care. We're not talking about social subsidies at all. And I think, you know, when we talk about statistics, we have to keep in mind, you know, statistics are the stories with the tears removed, you know. You know, it's it's a very tough position for somebody to be in when they don't want to be pregnant and having to manage that and how do they want to do that. So, you know, prevention is always going to be key. And I think, you know, birth control just strengthens individuals. It strengthens families. It strengthens societies. You know, it leads us, it lets us lead more empowered lives. And I think, you know, we can't measure that, right? Just that, you know, the ability for all Canadians to access a life of self-determination, to be able to do, you know, live their lives according to how they want want to do but for a lot of people that starts with the reproduction first you know you have to kind of manage that one of the other things that I've learned you know I think as a doctor I will tell you that I've learned more from my patients than I have from any textbook and one of the key things that I've learned is that life experience of the vulnerable is that life happens to me I don't get to choose what happens and for a lot of girls and women or people who can get pregnant in those situations you know pregnancy is something that happens to me I don't get to choose and you know we need to change that narrative and it's through contraception that we can do that and access should be universal you know I think we've gotten to a point where we've evolved to a society to say that you know this is something that we see the benefits in like you know just on the economics itself but on the social and we haven't even touched on the health benefits as far as you know maternal child and societal health but that this is who we are as a people and this is a policy that reflects and this is kind of where we've kind of evolved to so I think you know when you look at sort of the history of policies you know women got the right to vote in 1919 birth control became decriminalized in 
1989. So before that, it was illegal to speak about it. So me talking to you, Patty, we would have got to jail for two years um, if we had done this before 1969. Um, and it was illegal to sell it. And that was 54 years ago. I don't think we've had a policy yet now that would really equal the playing field for so many Canadians. And I think we're just due for it. It's been a long time. You know, the government, you know, you know, talks about, you know, sort of being, you know, pro-reproductive uh, rights and, you know, gender equity. But it's time to put it into policy now. I think, you know, that's really the important thing that we're looking at. Yeah, and I would, I would imagine in 1969, and still to this day in, in many corners, the issue regarding birth control would have been paternal and parochial and religious rationale behind it. So times have changed, rightfully so. So when, uh, I'll get the website off you one more time in a second, but when the project Empower Her, Empower Her, with the capital H-E-R at the end, when we talk birth control and your petition and proposal, does that include beyond birth control pills and the IUD or the sponge, whether or not that's a real thing or a Seinfeld thing? I'm not even sure as a man. But does it also include condoms? Yeah, so what we're really going for, and, you know, I just want your listeners to know that we have to start somewhere. So it's the first step. So what we're really going for is prescription contraception, and that is what they did in British Columbia. Okay. So that would include oral contraceptive pills. That would include both types of IUDs, the non-hormonal one and the locally acting one. Um, and it would include the injectables, and it would also include the implant as well. Um, and so, you know, some of those are those longer-acting forms of contraception that are very, very effective. Um, um, but you have to pay quite a bit of money up front for them. And so, you know, when I ask my patients, you know, when do you want to be pregnant? How important is it not for you to be pregnant? Like, those are reproductive life goals. And so what we want to do is help match them with what their goals are, with what their contraception is. Um, and the longer-acting forms of birth control, even though, let's say, an IUD is super effective, 99% you know, percent over five years, you know, oftentimes that cost is $500, and that's up front. Um, and so that's a lot of money for a lot of people. And so they can't afford that most effective form of contraception, so they end up choosing things that are cheaper. So things like condoms, let's say, you know, the top three forms of birth control in Canada are, you know, condoms, the birth control pill, and withdrawal. And those are not the most effective forms of contraception. And so you can see why we might be having 40% of our pregnancies would be unintended, because if we're not using forms of contraception that are super effective, then we're leaving ourselves at risk of that unintended pregnancy. You know, one of the other things that I find when we talk about free birth control, oftentimes people might think that, you know, we're kind of encouraging everybody to have sex and, you know, this kind of thing. And, you know, what I really, again, want to reframe is that birth control is not about sex. You know, birth control is about having a reproductive life plan. The decision of who and when to have sex with and, you know, those are decisions best had in families. And I would encourage all your listeners to talk to their, you know, children about what their concerns are or what they would like or, you know, but what we're talking about is that, you know, that ability to live your life the way that you want, right? That ability to, you know, access contraception. It just, like I said, it should not be a luxury item that can only be afforded by the people who have the money, right? It really yeah. should be equitable across the board. And the concept of abstinence is is exactly that. It's, it's simply a concept. It's not a form of birth control because we're sexual beings and many are sexually active. So uh, point taken. Before we say goodbye this morning, Dr. Tor, give the folks the website one more time where they can find the petition and, and any more information they'd like to get. 
Yeah, so projectempower.ca, that extra H at the end, um, like I said, or you can just search under petition uh, uh, for Canada contraception. It's E4516, that is the number of the petition. And I said it only takes a couple of minutes. You know, you just need to go, you register uh, your email, then you have to go to your email and just click the confirmation, and that's when you make your voice heard. Um, you know, we've been really excited. This uh, campaign we ran, it's been under 30 days. We ran it in the summer. You know, it was me and it was a student that was helping me. So it's not like I have a slick, you know, executive of 20 people and some organization behind me. You know, this has been very, very grassroots. Um, and, you know, I think the strength of us comes from us coming together. I think, you know, in the political climate today, there's a lot of, you know, um, I guess, you know, opposing views and lots of, you know, and, and that's okay. I think, you know, we can hold space for lots of perspectives, but this is one thing that we can all get behind. You know, the poll that showed 83% of Canadians approved this policy, you know, 83% of Canadians agree on anything, I think is incredible. <laughs> so I think this is something that the government does need to pay attention to. But the stronger numbers that we have, you know, the more strength we have when we go to, to speak to them. So this is where I would say, you know, if you just take a few minutes, you know, and maybe not for yourself, but maybe for somebody that you love, or just for those Canadians that you know that just have a tougher time accessing, you know, just anything with you know all the inflation and, and just the you know the issue with finances these days that you know this should be it, it'll just make life affordable for so many families so i just think we're due you know the time has come to make birth control free in canada appreciate the time thanks very much dr tour thank you patty you're welcome take care bye-bye Bye. dr Binder tour you can find that petition at empowerher.ca and so it's p-r-o-j-e-c-t e-m-p-o-w H-E-R. So an actual H in there for empowerher.ca or look up the petition at E4156. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the rally that was held yesterday at Confederation Building and an art exhibit out in Cupid's. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Ted, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hi, Ted. Oh, pretty good. I'll tell you now, uh, I suppose it's old age, right? But man, this, this weather got me slowed down, right? I got a bit of arthritis in my leg or something. But anyway, I didn't phone up to complain. No problem. One of the reasons I uh, I, I gave you a call, uh, because I, because uh, the last few months I've taken a bit of an interest in, uh, in the, you know, Newfoundland art, right? You know, paintings and that, right? Mm -hmm. So I, uh, a buddy of mine last week said, Ted, you should drop out to the, Exhibit, yeah, that's the word there in the Legacy Center in Cubits. Now, I don't know if you've ever been out there, but they have a beautiful building out there. Right? I have been there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really, really good building. I went out and I uh, actually I've been back three times, right? Although I find it hard getting around, but that'll clear up. And I was impressed with the talent, you know, in this province, okay? And when it comes to paintings, I'm uh, I'm certainly no expert on this stuff, but I, uh, and I know that's only the tip of the iceberg out there, right? So I looked at them all up there, I looked at them all up there, but anyway, I ended up buying a couple, and am I allowed to use the artist's name? Absolutely. Or? Thank you very much. Well, because I have a lot of work here myself that, uh, I think I told you one time before, uh, like Wayne George over there at Trinity Bay, right? I have a lot of his work, right? But during the uh, exhibition there, I looked at a, there was three paintings there, uh, I never knew the man's name before, Ray Alcock from Bishop Paul's, okay? 
I bought I bought one of his paintings. I really liked it. Uh, I got it bought. I left it on display there. I'll pick it up the weekend. And another one I bought was a, a lady. Uh, what's I got her name here? T- Tissel. Tina Tissel, right? So, and, and I did find out that this is, I think, the first time they've had this type of an exhibit, exhibit out there. And it's a charitable thing, okay? I didn't know that, right? But I'm telling you, if anybody listening to me or anyone, tourists or anything in the area right now, uh, it's still on, it's still open. I think they flew up Saturday. And believe me, it's worth the trip there to have a look at these uh, these paintings, right? And I mean, like I said, I was impressed that I bought a couple. I mentioned Wayne George, but that's private. But I've also had a couple of people looking out for me because I've got my own, what you call, I suppose, at the present time, personal art gallery set up, right? Not public, but anybody's welcome to come in and look. And I picked up a couple of, um, I think he died in 2000. And man, oh man, is his work ever impressive. A guy by the name of Lloyd Pretty. I think he operated out of Stephenville, right? Yeah, I know who he is. Yeah, I, I figured you do, and I think your producer, I think Dave, I think he's related to uh, Squires, I think it is, uh, Newfoundland artist, right? I got. I also picked up, um, you know, named uh, Marnie Collins out of Montreal. I think she's out west now. I like, uh, that's mainland stuff. And I picked up uh, some, of the, uh, one called, um, uh, you're, all from, you're familiar with more than I am, they're in Ontario, what they call Niagara on the Lake, right? I had a, that's a print. A lot of my stuff is printings, and a lot of uh, paintings, and a lot of them are original, right? And the only complaint I got is, uh, and it's, uh, I found it's, like the floors, you know, are so hard, you know, up there, and with this, it's to me or the weather, you know, and a couple of people, uh, senior people, have raised it to my attention, right? Uh, you go up and, and you're walking around, these floors are hard, right? Uh, but there's, there should be a few chairs, you know, probably half a dozen chairs or something. So probably because senior citizens and, and, and people like that can have a chance to sit down, right? So I'm, I'll bring that to the attention of the, uh, if I get a chance there, I don't know the people on the committee out there. But overall, I, I say it's, uh, I think they've had a great week out there. I thought it was a great display. I think the only one I was ever to before because this is new for me. I'm mostly into cattle and stuff now, but I'm at the age now I, I can't have that, right? Because if I get sick, there's nobody to feed it. But I think there last year, the year before, I think I spoke to you on that, I went up to one and uh, at the play, uh, rumors there in, in Avondale. But it's a great exhibit, Patty. I really enjoyed it, and I encourage people, to, you know, to look at it, and there is a lot of talent in this province. Oh, there's no doubt about that, and right across the entirety of the world of art, and absolutely in the world of painting, no doubt. Uh, Ted, I'm glad you're enjoying your new purchases, and appreciate the time this morning. Yeah, sometime when I get things set up properly, right, because I got other stuff like uh, like that, you know, usually I was, you know, I dealt with the bloody old antiques collectibles for a while, right, mm-hmm. but I took one of the buildings that was on my property here, actually, that my late brother used, my mom used to keep a couple of head of cattle there, right, so about three months ago, I said, I got to do something with this property, I said, so anyway, I got, I got a guy worker, right? I got it painted up. I got it done up inside. I got I got some really good stuff. There's no question about it. And like I said, I've got some 
some some of the couple of people that I have looking out for me that are going around or picking up stuff, right? But one of these days when I get everything looking tidy up inside and a couple of uh, some of the good paintings, I'll have one of the boys uh, probably flash you a picture or something there of what's going on inside my building, if that's okay with you. Sounds good to me. Easy enough to reach me. Oh, you're easy to reach. Yep, no problem there, Ted. Stay in anyway, touch. Anyway, thanks for the time, uh, Patty. Anytime. All the best. Bye-bye, okay, yeah. bye-bye. Yeah. Uh, let's try to get back on track with the breaks. Christine, you stay right there. Want to hear her perspective about the rally that took place yesterday regarding mental health and addictions on the steps of the Confederation Building. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Christine, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. I just wanted to, uh, first of all, uh, pass my condolences on to all the families that are losing loved ones due to addiction and overdose on the drug. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really uh, good to see uh, people rallying out in front of the Confederation building. And I'd really like to see and hope that it continues because it's something that needs to continue like for every every day that the Confederation building is open until we as parents or loved ones are heard. Uh, our, our government is completely gone, like, their heads are in the sand and they need to start taking their heads out of the sand and realize I know they know I mean we're losing our loved ones due to drugs and overdosing but I mean they seem not to do anything about it and uh, has it impacted you and your family Christine oh absolutely (laughs) absolutely Uh, I was on your show there I don't know, probably uh, six months ago. Uh, And, I mean, uh, I said to you when I was on your show there, when I was going through the issue with my son, uh, like, yeah, uh, it's great that we have a three-week program, but, I mean, the wait time is ridiculous. It's unacceptable. And a three-week program for people that are addicted to these seriously chemical drugs is just not going to cut it. And it's not helping. The majority of people that come out of that treatment center, they go right back in the same situation and sometimes into a bigger drug. Our government needs to listen to our people listen to us we as parents we as loved ones they need to put their priorities where they belong okay so christine what should their priorities be like what are you suggesting more and more opportunities for rehab beds out, you know outside of labrador and humberwood or are you talking about reducing the assessment periods or education campaigns or what exactly do you think would be helpful well, uh, first and foremost, uh, uh, Labrador has nothing, which is uh, very saddened. Uh, and we need more beds, and we need treatments. Uh, if they're going to have treatment, do it right. We need treatments for at least four to six months for anybody that's dealing with uh, 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 heart addictions. And uh, uh, the government has money for everything else. And then uh, uh, with something so serious as this, it's uh, it's unacceptable. 
And come election time, you'll see the government there promise this and promise that. And I just hope people don't forget what we're, we're into and how bad our province have been gone in the last three years. It's unbelievable how our government is letting our province go. The issue that I think gets lost a little bit here is the fact that every time we hear a story of an overdose is that people automatically think that this is someone who has been suffering a really serious addiction when that doesn't have to be the case you hear from people who know much more about it than i do and they will look at you know there, there is such a thing this not endorsing it but this is a, a thing is that some people are able to use a variety of different intoxicants like alcohol for instance and not have it become a problem like to smoke marijuana and not to be at it every day to use some of these more illicit drugs and not to be consumed with an all-out addiction and so what some of these deaths could be from someone who uses it as a recreational drug and every now and then because the problem is, is that folks who are really highly addictive and use it as much as they possibly can, they build up a, a certain kind of tolerance. For those who don't, their tolerance is so low that the possibility for the substances that they consume could drop them dead where they stand. So we don't, I don't think we should talk about overdose deaths as simply a straight up someone who's had a massive addiction, spiraling out of control. They're knocking on death's door. When in fact, anyone who consumes, even recreationally, once a year, it could kill you. That's because of what's been added to these drugs. It's different than the drugs that were on the street 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. And I know, I know that. And I mean, uh, uh, I'm going to say nine chances out of ten, the, the marijuana is not the, uh, the, uh, the case in people ODing on drugs. So, uh, But still, uh, at the end of the day, we need the treatment facilities. We need more beds and we need longer. And the time wait is ridiculous. And like I said, up in Labrador, uh, I mean, they don't call Labrador big land for nothing. We have a lot of people here. And I mean, there's absolutely nowhere for anybody to go here for help other than mental health uh, uh, place down here in the hospital. Yeah, the opportunity to get the help when you want the help is not as accessible as it really should be. Uh, I, pre I appreciate the time this morning, Christine. Would you like to say anything else? No, it's time for the government to uh, 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 get on the ball and the rally people. I'm so glad, and I really hope that you continue. I just came back to St. John's. I was out there for like three months. It's uh, too bad I hadn't been there for this rally because I can let tell you, guaranteed, I would have been there and I would have been heard loud. I appreciate your time, Christine. Thank you. Stay in touch. Thanks. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go out to the west coast of the island. Say good morning to Grenfell's Campus Register and Director of Student Services. That's Carolyn Parsons. Good morning, Carolyn. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Could not be better. How about you? Not too bad. No complaints. Juggling some pretty serious matters, though, like everyone who's dealing with anything in the institutions of higher learning. And let's start with housing. So we hear the stories all the time here in the city of St. John's at Memorial's campus. But out on your side of the island, it's no different, especially for international students. Tell us what the wait list looks like and give us some maybe personal stories about the impact it has on the students. So right now for this September, we have approximately 50 people on our wait list for student housing. And that is a little bit higher than it has been in, in previous years. 
Um, and obviously that's very stressful for students hoping to, to move here in the fall. Um, you know, we're pretty lucky, I guess. We do have 600 uh, beds on campus, which can accommodate about almost 50% of our student population. But obviously, that's still not enough to uh, to accommodate the demand. So we are trying to help our students navigate the situation and, and trying to connect them with landlords in the area that, um, that might be a good fit for them. So... Um, in the last few weeks, we have hired one of our graduate students, actually, to work uh, with us for a few weeks to help really do a push with landlords, get some information on what is available in the community, and help connect students to uh, to places that are the right fit for them. And, you know, not every student is looking for the same thing. It might be someone who wants their own standalone apartment. People simply want to roam. So what's the variety of look like inside the 50 or so on the wait list? <laughs> It's exactly what you said. It's a, a real mix of things. Um, and obviously, we only really know the the students who are on the wait list because we know they are looking for housing. But there are some students that don't apply for student housing because it's not appropriate. So what we've been finding, especially in recent years, our um, our graduate programs, our master's and our PhD programs um, have been increasing. And... So our student population is, is changing. So we do have more uh, mature students and more students moving with families. Um, so, you know, they're looking for, you know, houses or, or apartments with multiple bedrooms to accommodate the, the family that's moving with them. So that's where some of the challenge uh, lies. I I know that you say the you know you've got a graduate student that's looking to coordinate with landlords and try to find a placement for the fifty odd on the wait list. There was once a thing that was a formal program with all the different different moving parts satisfied by human resources. You know, home share. Is the conversation ongoing between yourself and your counterpart at uh, the St. John's campus? I believe his name is Mr. Belvin to formalize it, as opposed to you know news stories that say if you have a room, contact the university, as opposed to you know getting down to brass tacks, creating a list of uh, seniors or retirees that may indeed want to entertain this, you know, a bit of money coming in, shared household duties, make it a real formal program as opposed to see when the wait list might grow beyond capacity and then consequently having this type of plea to the general public. Is that conversation happening? Yeah, there is a, there's, oh, there's been lots of conversations happening around, you know, what, what is the right solution for this longer term um, and, and what are some creative solutions to, to connecting with the community and, and finding some good options for our students. Because as everyone's well aware, to, uh, affordability, affordability of housing is, is a challenge. So, um, you know, students aren't able to pay high rent. So, so it is getting creative to look at, are there other solutions that we could be looking at that, you know, maybe there are people who aren't currently renting apartments, but there might be a good, like you say, a home share option or sharing of household duties for um, some of our seniors in the community, those types of things. So, so those conversations need to continue to happen so we can find a more sustainable solution. I read the news story when it first came out where you're quoted. I can't remember exactly what you said about this next issue. We know that housing is a national concern, a national quote-unquote crisis. And people will talk about immigration thresholds set by the current Liberal government, about how it contributes. Now, it's not just about immigrants. I'm not trying to demonize anybody here. But quite curiously, former immigration minister, current housing minister, Sean Fraser, who actually is going to be on this program tomorrow, talked about the federal government pumping the brakes and 
putting a cap on international students. It sounds like the strangest place to start when we're talking about people more uh, open to younger immigrants with skills behind them and or international students who are likely to graduate with said skills to fill some of the gaps in the country. What were your thoughts when you heard that? For me, I thought that is the most bizarre place to start this concern <laughs> regarding housing. Um, I agree with you. I, I think that w- would be a horrible direction to go. Um, you know, our international students are so important to our campus. Well, not just our campus, to, to our communities. Um, you know, from a social, cultural, economic perspective, they just they bring so much to our learning environments and as well as the community as a whole. So I absolutely think that would be the wrong direction. And I don't think, I mean, for us on the West Coast, yes, we've had a, we've had some increase with our international student population, but it hasn't been massive or out of control in any way. And, you know, our student enrollment hasn't grown immensely in the last few years. So it's, it's not like there's um, crazy growth happening that, that we can't sustain. I do think we're, we're seeing a change in the the student demographic and and their needs are changing um, and we need to be able to support that but you know to turn to start turning away um, international students that want to come to Canada just a a blanket sort of thing I, I really hope it doesn't go in that direction it is you know it's so complex and every region is is so completely different. So I'm, I'm sure, I'm confident that they that they won't make some quick uh, policy switch there. It's just completely counters the federal liberals' approach to immigration and the conversations surrounding immigration. Period. You know, they talk about economic upside, skilled trades, job shortages, all those types of things. That it just sounds so odd. And not to generalize, but it seems to me international students were are much more inclined to come to our universities in Canada or institutions of higher learning to take on advanced degrees too. So we're talking about doctors and engineers and IT specialists and computer scientists and mathematicians and the like. So it's just so strange that we'd want to reduce those numbers. Uh, last one. Do we have a firm grip or grasp on how many international students upon graduation stay, whether it be throughout the entirety of Memorial University? Because in form, and again, just for a realistic approach, I'm helping to subsidize their education. We have lots of gaps that we need everyone to fill, regardless if you're homegrown talent or from anywhere else in the world. Do we know how many stay, whether it be for five years, 10 years, or stay forever? Unfortunately, I don't have that number in in front of me, but I I will um, agree with you there as well. I mean, I know our province, Newfoundland and Labrador, wants to grow and and retain people and, like you say, attract young, vibrant um, individuals to stay here. And many of the international students that I interact with love it here, and they they want to stay. They want to be a contributing member of our society and, and find employment here. And you know, we we need uh, we need our students, international and and domestic, to stay in our communities. So I, you know, it's it's very important to uh, to support them and still encourage um, students to come to Canada and, and more specifically to our province to study. A hundred percent. It's nice to have you on the show, Carolyn. Would you like to say anything else? No, um, just if there are any landlords in Cornerbrook, reach out and, and we can try to connect. And and just to clarify, too, it, it isn't just our international students who um, 
who are on the on the wait list. Oh, it, sure. it is a range of a, a, a range of students. So um, again, we are confident that that we will be able to work through this with uh, with our community partners and 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 the community. We've already had lots of people reaching out. So um, so we are hoping that we will be able to um, help our students and, and get them off to a great start in the semester. I appreciate your time. Good luck in the fall semester uh, semester and beyond. Thank you, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. My See pleasure. See you later, Patty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Carolyn Parsons is the Campus Registrar and Director of Student Services at the Grenfell Campus of Memorial University. Let's take a break. When we come back, there's an emergency services worker in the queue to talk about the danger of drug use from a couple of different angles. And then Colin's got a problem with the garbage collection. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. I'm a first-time caller to your program. Welcome. Um, yes, and uh, just an interesting topic to me today is, for confidentiality reasons, I will just state that I do work in the emergency uh, industry, but I won't get into exactly what my role is there, again, just for confidentiality reasons. But, no problem. Uh, the, the topic today with regards to... Um, overdoses in particular, um, it hits home to me as we're, you're kind of dealing with it on a daily basis, and I don't think the public is fully aware of just how large this problem has become, um, but what prompted me to call today was when you had indicated this is not your uh, hardcore drug users uh, that are being affected. These are families that are, like you said, recreational users who think they're going to be okay, but I think the message needs to get out there that uh, nobody is okay who are dabbling with these drugs today. Um, It's very scary. Uh, The number of overdoses are staggering. I don't think the public fully are getting uh, the exact numbers, but working in the industry, we know it's a larger problem than what is actually reaching the population. So I think it's important that even people like myself speak out and uh, make the public aware that I personally feel we need to start in the homes and educating our children at a young, much younger age. Um, education to me is key. I know a lot of people are quick to point the fingers at the government and the programs and the resources not being enough that are out there. Um, but we also have to put some responsibility back on the people that are going through these programs. They're not going to work if you're going to go through the program and you're going to come back out. And I know people are saying that the resources are not there once they come through the program. But some of the responsibility has to be with the person as well to make those decisions to, you know, ensure that they're doing what they have to do to stay clean and sober and to do the hard work on their end as well. Uh, We're very quick to blame these programs being on I know there's shortages there. Everybody is aware of that. And my heart goes out to the families that are losing uh, their children, their loved ones. And like you said, we're, we're dealing with it. We're seeing it on a daily basis. But I don't think that blame is the answer. I think that education, taking some responsibility yourself as a person, and uh, you know, knowing that like it's going to be hard work and you have to do the hard work. And for the recreational users thinking that it's okay that you know to to do a line or whatever choice of drug they're doing that I'm I'm going to be okay because I know where this is coming from. They don't know where it's coming from at the end of the day. No, they don't. I I've 
I try to be as accurate as I can based on what I understand and what people with lived experience tell me. But I'm going to opine that the hardcore addict is possibly, you know, their risk is intensified with the frequency that they use, but for someone who's a recreational user, and that's not to endorse or to enable or condone what anybody does when they use these very dangerous drugs, with their tolerance level, they might be more susceptible to an overdose. So to pretend that, well, I only use it, you know, a couple of times in the summer. I mean, the first time you ever use it might be the last time you ever use it. Exactly. And if we don't put the info out there, like, I don't know how many overdoses have happened in the recent past. People talk about 11 between parts of July into parts of August. I think it's incumbent on the healthcare system and the government to report them loud and clear. And that's not to scare people. That's just to paint an accurate picture of what's happening. If 11 is 50, then 50 is a bigger number to consider. And we know that the problem is broader, wider deeper, more dangerous than it ever has been before. And that's why I'm calling today, because I believe that, yes, I, you know, the, the RNC, the Royal Constabulary, the RCMP, wherever these overdoses are taking place, education, uh, more information, I believe, needs to get out to the public with the real statistics as to what you're dealing with here. And uh, then people may become more aware and they may be more conscious as to, you know, the next time they choose to to take that drug, they might, you know, think twice about doing it. I will say, in all honesty, I know some people who are exactly in that category, recreational sporadic users. And I can only hope, because, you know, when you're in your own small social circle, nobody wants to be that person, the holier-than-thou, the preacher, you know, someone condemning what everyone else chooses to do. But the fact of the matter is, with the addition of fentanyl to the illicit drug conversation, everything has changed. Everything. One exactly. line could be the death of you. So One line could be the deadline. <laughs> well I mean. put. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the naloxone kits are only um, as they're only going to work if they're administered properly. Right. Um, if they're readily available. <clears throat> and excuse me, they're not always going to be. So, like, I'm my heart, like I said, goes out to the families that are losing their children and and, and the people on the streets. And, and we speak a lot of times to hardcore addicts um, and, you know, that they slip back into this when uh, they come out of recovery. I'm in total agreement that there needs to be some resources once these people do come out of recovery and also... You know, a lot of responsibility has to to go back to to the person, to the individual, to families, starting to educate their children early. Um, but some responsibility on on the individual as well, who to make better choices and better decisions, because we are in a crisis when it when it comes to overdoses. And uh, like you said, I believe like Eastern Health or uh, somebody who has those those true numbers. Um, should be making the calls to to make the public more aware. Absolutely, and I'm glad you made time for the show this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take Have care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. Colin, you stay right there, and then we're also going to talk a little daycare after the news break. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Okay, let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Colin. You're on the air. 
Yes, actually, my name is Paul. Oh, sorry about that, Paul. Welcome to the show. My apologies. <laughs> no problem. No, I excuse me. I live in the Newfoundland Labrador, Newfoundland, Newfoundland Labrador housing unit building, 15-unit building in St. John's, and we have a garbage room downstairs. And uh, Newfoundland Labrador Housing has uh, decided to close the garbage room altogether and put a dumpster on the side of the building. And now residents and our tenants in the building have to carry their own household garbage out to the dumpster. And uh, that's going to present a lot of issues for a lot of people with mobility problems and back issues and and everything like that. And especially given the winter coming up when uh, normally the parking lots here and the, the grounds are not uh, salted very good in the winter and everybody's afraid now that they're going to sleep and fall and they bring out the garbage and break their hip or something else. Yeah, if, if people have concerns with the safety underfoot, that's one thing. But of course, with mobility and what have you, how were they able to even just avail of the garbage room downstairs as opposed to now the need to go out to the dumpster? Well, uh, normally what happens with did go downstairs and even get someone to bring it down, you know, or they couldn't bring it down herself. But uh, then the housing uh, staff would come in like three times a week and clear the garbage room, and uh, apparently that's not going to happen anymore. So um, we do have a petition gone into uh, housing and to um, our MHA. She's aware of the, of the issue. And uh, there was a lady in the building the other day from housing and matter of fact I didn't get to talk to her but she dropped off a letter and in the letter she quote a quote pad letter she said purpose of my visit will be listen to any concerns that you may be may be present and offer solutions by connecting you to supports that exist in the community if appropriate now I don't even know what that meant that just caused a lot of confusion for a lot of people like uh, hopefully they'll change their mind and and you know, open the garbage room again, right? So I assume they moved it out of the building for the obvious concerns with how garbage stinks and maybe rodent issues and what have you. Is there any great distance to travel to get to the dumpster? Yeah, it's a fair distance from. Uh, you got to go right through the back door of the building. It's a good twenty feet from the from the main, from the side door. So, okay. And so, what's this building again? One more time, Paul. It's a Newfoundland Labrador housing uh, building. Okay. It's just under housing. Okay, that's all I need. It yeah. doesn't matter where. Uh, yeah. Anything else you'd like to say this morning? No, I just hope that uh, the day with common sense would uh, rain and we get this reversed, right? Because it don't make sense in my view. <laughs> I appreciate you making time for the show, Paul. Stay in touch. Have a good day. You too, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah. All right, so based on yesterday's announcement, an update on daycare spaces and what's being done, we're going to get comments and thoughts coming from a child care advocate. That's Gillian Pearson joining us on 6. Good morning, Gillian. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I was certainly uh, interested in uh, awaiting an update regarding child care, early childhood educators, and all the rest. We got some numbers yesterday. Some were encouraging. 820 additional spaces last year. You know, another 17 pre-K sites will open up next year, adding up to about 600 additional spaces. Monies for francophones, uh, francophone ECEs, another 100 in the fold. All the ECEs into 1,200 now. But there's still some stuff missing. Just give us your high-level reaction to what we heard yesterday before we dig into some of the particulars. Yeah, so I think it's a really good sign that we have an update and we have a reference point on where we are with some of the progress. 
Um, obviously, it's kind of like a, a multi-prong issue with this particular um, policy because you're dealing with child care spaces. So the facilities operators are dealing with parents, the children, as well as the labor force. So like you said, um, they indicated that right now there's about 8,300 uh, regulated spaces at, you know, the $10 a day or less. And the or less means those are after school spaces. And it went on to say that there are plans to expand a number of additional spaces and facilities all across Newfoundland and Labrador. So that was super encouraging because we, the majority of spaces have, you know, historically been mostly concentrated on the on the Avalon and Metro, and there's been a lot of childcare deserts, you know, across the province. So that's really good to see that there's going to be a little more of an, you know, equitable distribution to access to regulated childcare spaces. Um, and the issue is now is that you know we don't really have a whole lot of context or deep dive into those numbers. Um, so it's good that we're you know seeing the numbers trend upward. But you know what are the breakdown of that 8,300? Uh, we don't have a clear idea of demand. The portal that is supposed to be tracking demand is going to come out this fall. Okay, that's great. Um, but you know that that should have been enacted really when we signed the the early learning and childcare agreement uh, with the federal government a couple of years ago. Um, like I indicated this morning when I spoke with uh, with Jerry Lynn, um, you know, we probably have around 24, 25,000 children under the age of six right now. If we only have 8,300 spaces, you know, and, and we want to double that to at least get coverage maybe up to, you know, 70%, you know, is, is that going to take 10 years? We don't have a clear idea um, of the path forward. We, we're seeing a little bit of progress. That's great. And I'm, and I'm I think a lot of people are happy that we have some something to work with. Um, but like, what's what's a more detailed path forward? For me, it's like everything else. I read a news story the other day where the province is trying to determine exactly how many people don't have a family doctor. The only way to measure success of any policy is to have measurables. And if we don't know how many people, anecdotally or otherwise, are on wait lists, you did some uh, rough math there, and I appreciate it, and I think you're probably very accurate with that math. But if the province doesn't put that number forward, then there's no way to know whether or not the current process, the current investment, or the current spend, or the current policy with ECEs or anything else is actually working. That's what gets left out of the conversation for me. It's good to say we added uh, 820 spaces. It's good to say we added 100 ECEs. But what does that, how does that add up to and compare to the actual need on the ground? Right, exactly. And, you know, when we're talking about investment and we're talking about taxpayer dollars here and strategic decision making, you know, data is really the most important key point here. You know, we don't want to be feeling around in the dark. We don't want to be kind of guiding ourselves by, you know, general progress points. We really want to, you know, work backwards and say, like, where is our goal? What do all of our demographics say? Can we meet our own goals? And, like, where are the gaps? Because another piece of the part of the conversation that's missing is that like we're often talking because this issue is a little multi-layered and complex we're, we're talking about these in silos so you know Newfoundland and Labrador have have really as well as Canada we've really ramped up our immigration um so you know 
is demand going to exceed, like, are we, are those numbers built in for the newcomers that we're going to be welcoming to make sure that they have access to services? Um, you know, we are doing some recruitment and they mentioned, you know, the ECE numbers, uh, 100, you know, plus have returned or, you know, are out into the workforce. Like, is, is that a net gain? How many did we lose over the last number of years? And if we are going to ensure that we are addressing this crisis, because, you know, the incremental progress that we are making, I'm, I'm sure everyone really appreciates and understands. Like, you can't just click your fingers and have, like, a workforce, um, you know, just materialize. You can't, you know, it, it takes some time to build capacity, um, but that's not really helping any parents who are, like, really in the thick of it right now. They're panicking. And, you know, it is a red flag that we are a few years into the early learning agreement, um, never mind probably 10 years into trending towards this crisis mode, and we don't have any data. So that's disappointing. It is. Data informs good decision-making. If we make it... Uh obligatory by law to fill out uh, census, then, you know, well, that be- that's because we need the data to make good, sound policy decisions. And the same can be said for this. I don't even know the rationale behind it. I suppose what governments do is that when they handle it like this, is that it takes away that ability for the general public, whether you be involved in daycare, looking for a space or not, to evaluate the success and or the merit behind your policies. It's as simple as that. So they really, they really need to owe, uh, they owe us a little bit more on this front. Because even if you're someone who doesn't have a child uh, that needs child care, I don't. My boys are in their 20s. But I understand the problem, and I understand the concept and the upside of the uh, economics of $10 a day. But the cart in front of the horse is never really great. That's politics, not reality. Uh, final thought. Thoughts to you, Jillian. Anything you'd like to discuss regarding this daycare update or anything else? Um, so, I mean, like, again, I really appreciate that we we have a reference point here. And if we really want to, you know, commit to making this a robust approach, we do have the capacity here in our local community at the university with social scientists who can do some really incredible modeling instead of, uh, you know, chasing or, or or depending on parents to go to this portal to register their own demand, uh, which which does ha- have it, has its merits. But we can take the number of children, the demographics that we do have, you know, the labor force activity, um, the makeups of families, and we can do all sorts of modeling, help tighten up the path that we need to get on and to, um, you know, Structure our labor force, our um, you know our ECE output, as well as the speed at which we're creating these new these new spaces. So there are ways we can tackle this a little more effectively and efficiently. And um, you know, kudos to all of the advocates and all the allies out there who are you know keeping the pressure on. Appreciate your time this morning as usual, Jillian. Thanks. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jillian Pearson is a child care advocate. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with a criminal and civil lawyer all the way from British Columbia. Juan O'Quinn is next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to a criminal and civil lawyer out in the province of British Columbia. That's Juan O'Quinn. Good morning, Juan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing okay. How are you doing? Pretty good. Um, I'm a regular listener because although I'm in British Columbia with the time difference, 
my wake-up period puts me at about an hour left in your show, so I listen quite a, quite often. And I was prompted to call this morning, having heard the uh, emergency nurse talk about what I would suggest is a, a canary in a coal mine back home. Um, I practiced law in Newfoundland for quite a long period of time until I moved to British Columbia, and this is probably year 28 for me. My recent experience has been as a provincial prosecutor, and now as a civil lawyer. And obviously, as most people hear on television and radio, the uh, fentanyl epidemic has hit this area of the country particularly uh, hard. Um, one of my friends who's a physician in St. John's, Paul Jackman, uh, who's been to Haiti with uh, the Premier's crowd when they went down to work on that uh, terrible earthquake, him and I drove through the side of Vancouver on, on our way somewhere one day, and he, he said it reminded him of a war zone that he'd seen in Haiti. Up in the Okanagan, where I live, we uh, in Kelowna probably have a 250-tent city at the back of the city in the industrial area. Now, when the nurse suggested that one line could be the death of you, um, she wasn't kidding What's happened, and um, I, I spent many years representing drug traffickers, importers, what's happening right now is that the cartels from Mexico and Colombia are cutting the cocaine with fentanyl. It, um, it serves a difficult purpose for all of those who are consuming the product. Fentanyl obviously increases the high, so when you hear about these individuals on the street who are getting Narcon three or four times a day. It happens out here as many as seven times. The fentanyl hit that they get is so high that they chase it, just like we all know that people chase that that first high from cocaine or methamphetamine or heroin. Mm -hmm. What's happening now is that that uncontrollable fentanyl um, composition in the drug is killing people. My children are in their late 20s now, and both of them have lost upwards of three or four friends because they've done exactly what your last caller said. Took a line of cocaine, didn't know any different, and just went off into, uh, into the, the afterworld. Um, my point to call this morning is that I think it's important to distinguish between individuals who are drug addicted and those of us who aren't who use the drug recreationally. Um, those who use the drug recreationally now, I would suggest the best analogy for what they're doing is playing Russian roulette. Because you don't know, as opposed to going to a government-regulated pot dis dispensary, where we know the product is safe. You don't know where the product's coming from. So if you manage to get a bit of you know, cocaine for your party on a Friday night with your friends, and that cocaine has been sourced from Montreal and their source was Colombia, and it's mixed with fentanyl, there's a probability that you can take one line and that fentanyl can kill you. We don't build up what we would call somewhat of a tolerance to it. The fentanyl goes into your system and kills you. You're putting a gun to your head. So those in our community, um, and I, I still practice in Newfoundland, so I have a deep interest and love for the province and the people. Those who are recreationally using it are playing Russian roulette. You do not know if you're going to wake up in the morning. That's one group of our society's members who are at high risk, and they don't even know it. The suggestion earlier by the uh, emergency uh, nurse, however, coming from the best place, 
to suggest that we should make better decisions. Yes, you and I should make better decisions. We should make the decision not to do it. An individual who's drug addicted, however, they're not making a decision from a perspective of using cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine. Um, they are drug addicted. They are lost. They're in a spin whereby the only thing that keeps them moving from day to day is their high. That high that they get from the fentanyl-infused drug is what they seek. Now, for her to suggest, or any of us to suggest, they should make better decisions, that comes from an honest place in our heart where we really don't want people to die. I've been in front of judges in provincial court sentencing individuals when I was a crown prosecutor, and these people were, you know, drug addicted. And the judge, who sits every day here in these particular problems, has said exactly that. The next time you decide to put that needle in your arm, sir, make a better decision, because individuals can't fund their drug addiction habit by any other means than criminal behavior and criminal activity when they're living on the streets. So people aren't making a better decision when they're drug addicted. They're not making a decision. They're compelled to do it out of the addiction. That is a, um, a, a point that's very difficult to deal with. We need extremely large amounts of resources to help those folks just because uh, I see them every day in my area because, you know, the, the weather today, as you know, from the fires has been so hot. People can live outdoors here all year long. So British Columbia, the lower mainland, the Okanagan Valley, Vancouver Island attracts people, not because it's a wonderful place to live, but because they can live outdoors, because they can survive on the streets. That's what are so many people here. Those folks need resources to be saved. And really, we're saving them from not themselves, but from their addiction. That's the one category that's very challenging for governments to deal with because we need resources, we need funding, we need all kinds of services to deal with their addiction. Folks like you and me, Patty, who work all day in our engineering firms at CBC, at VOCM, at the hospital as nursing assistants, in the school boards, folks like us who go to a party on a Friday night and decide to do a line that someone's provided us that we don't know where we are, you're pulling a trigger on a handgun every single time. You are. Um, you know, the concept of moving to B.C. because you can live outdoors, same reason why people flock to California. I mean, it's the, the very similar conversation. You know, and I think you're making uh, excellent points here, Juan. It's not about necessarily policy. It's about politics. And that's what's really been the misguidance given to this conversation. Because on one side of the political spectrum, everything regarding regulated safe supply, safe injection sites, naloxone kits, that is deemed to be enablers. When in fact, if anyone thinks that I can get a clean needle, well, today's the day I start heroin, that's just not the reality. That's not how anything works. And on the other side, it's maybe taking the steps too far to make it too accessible, to make it, uh, to remove any sign of taboo or awareness or warning about taking drugs. So somewhere inside of those two bubbles on the political spectrum is where we have to find the compromise, where we have to find the best path forward. Like in your province, they decriminalized small amounts, 2.5 grams or less of a bunch of these drugs and people immediately were up on arms saying well now everyone's going to use but that's not how anything works when they legalized marijuana in this country there was no big spike the biggest spike amongst canadians the age demographic was seniors and most of that was regarding cbd and things like that so we've got to get the politicians who are simply trying to pander to their base uh fan the flames underneath their ardent supporters because 
virtually every single conversation on every single topic, if that's how politicians are going to uh, proceed, then we're guaranteed to make bad decisions. We're guaranteed to implement horrible policy. We're going to let political uh, ambitions and votes rule something that which is a health care issue. There's no blue, red, or green, or orange inside of health care. People need help. Forever and a day, this has been a criminal matter. And as an attorney, you can verify this. This continent has spent trillions of dollars in my lifetime, trillions on the war against drugs. And where are we? We're worse. It's worse. There's nothing's been improved. Not one single thing under the sun has been improved. It's absolutely demonstrably worse. So when things are broken and things don't work and when things are worse, maybe just maybe it's in all our collective best interest to change our tune. It's a challenge because there's a generational divide from a perspective sure. of uh, exactly what you talk about, that we are enabling people. We're, we're not enabling drug addicts to continue to be drug addicts when they're full addicted. We're not. <laughs> we're trying to provide safe sites so that they don't die uh, of HIV or end up into our system with uh, intravenous disease that leaves us in a hospital bed with someone with a drug addiction. But you're exactly right. It's ironic right now, and I, I'm not politically motivated in my call, but it's ironic in in Alberta right now, that we see a, a somewhat of a conservative movement towards uh, saying drugs are bad, just like you say, kind of old Reaganism. <clears throat> British Columbia has been suffering from this epidemic for a number of years. Alberta has been suffering just as bad um, because people have access to money. People are able to fund their, you know, their private lives when they go out and have fun, and drug use is a part of that. And we've, I've, I've probably had 10 clients who worked in Fort McMurray who came back and forth to British Columbia who were set up with their two cars, campers, skidoos, uh, you know, four-bedroom house in Fort Mac, and they both lost everything because of an, of an addiction to drugs. <clears throat> Until we do exactly what you say and treat this as a as a health issue uh, and, and it's horrible around where I live because most individuals who are living on the streets also suffer from significant mental illness and I'm sure the experience in, in Newfoundland is the same um, so until we really say and, and I don't know if we're going to because those folks that are drug addicted that are living on the streets most of those folks don't vote because they're just not in a place to vote. So I don't know if politicians care or pay attention, but, but I can tell you one thing. Uh, when you have someone close to you that dies, I saw Tina Olivero speaking about it because I was home for some work and saw her just after I left on, on, on a news item that her son had died. My son's best friend died. He lived with me for a full summer till he was getting ready to go back to university and did exactly what, what we said. He got drunk one night and did a lot of cocaine and didn't wake up. He was on his track to go to law school. So until we realize that this is a health problem and treat it that way, it's not going to get any better. And unfortunately, because of the course how addiction takes, it will get worse. Uh, so I would just <clears throat> caution the politicians that are listening and your listeners that be prepared for your numbers to climb, just like COVID, because that's what we've seen here. We, we had more people dying at one point during COVID, more people dying in British Columbia of drug overdose than COVID. And no one seemed or seems uh, to really be paying much attention to fixing that problem. So, you know, every chance you get, and it's difficult, Patty, because this issue, uh, I always say no one cares about firemen until their house is on fire. This issue is like that. Until you lose someone close to you or you suffer from it yourself 
or you're in the throes of drug addiction or you have family members, it doesn't matter to you. But once it does, it takes over your life. So just steal people for what's to come. Because um, I can tell you one thing. My experience with representing drug traffickers back in my past, once they see a way to make money, they're not going to stop putting fentanyl in, in, in the drugs. They're going to put more because they know it guarantees uh, people that will buy the drug. So just be prepared as a province to suffer this and see it more and more and more. And unless uh, policies are crafted to protect people from what they're going to go through, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's becoming, in some parts of this province, a emotional wasteland where people live because you see hundreds of people on the street and it's hard to steal yourself from it because they're you know some of those people i know <laughs> i represented them and prosecuted them were just like me one day and a year later to living on the street so i, I just want to caution people still this is a canary in a coal mine scenario and when we talk about making better choices drug addicts are not making better choices they're just surviving you and i probably could make a better choice um and we're going to be the one that pays ultimately and, and the cost of looking after these folks uh, is immense. So I, I think governments really need, federal and provincial really need to pay attention because this is going to be a huge uh, a, a huge issue in the future. Juan, nice to have you on the show. Long time no see. Hope you're well. Yeah, you do You do a wonderful job, Patty. That's why I listen every day. Thank you very much. Thanks, Juan. Stay in touch. Take care. Okay, yeah, bye-bye. Juan O'Quinn, criminal and civil lawyer. Look, let me be clear. I wish nobody did these drugs. Right? I've warned my children about these drugs. But the fact of the matter is people do use the drugs. So it's not about enabling. It's just recognizing. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about drugs or anything else. If we've been doing the same thing forever and ever and ever and ever, and then we come to the acknowledgement that it doesn't work and things have actually gotten worse, that seems like a great time to not pump the brakes, but to jam both feet down hard on the brakes and reassess where we are, what we're doing, what we're achieving, or where we're failing. And in this case, we just are. It's unfortunate. It's sad and it's scary, but that's what's happening. Let's take a break. When we come back, Annette was actually at the rally yesterday, and then we're going to talk about some comments coming from the federal housing minister regarding international students with John Harris. He's the director of external affairs at Munsu. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Annette. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Um, yes, this is Annette. I'm a first-time caller. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I uh, listen to your show all the time. Um, very powerful. Everything that that gentleman, lawyer Juan, said is absolutely true. That was um, very powerful. And a lot of information. Um, I went to the rally yesterday um, with my grandchildren. I have my two-year-old grandson strapped on my back for a while, and my nine-year-old granddaughter, Kinsley, holding my hand, and my other daughter, Ashley. Ashley. And, uh, wow, I, uh, I had no intentions of speaking. I was just going to be there for support for Tina. I really wanted to meet her and hug her. My daughter, Amber, is an addict, and she also knew, knew Ben. And, I had, yeah, I had no intention of speaking, but it's just like 
somebody picked me up and walked me up those stairs and someone started speaking and it just spilled out. I wanted people to know our story and to know that they're not alone. Um, My daughter Amber is 30. She's beautiful, kind, sweet, an amazing mom, Um, but she's an addict, and she is stuck. Juan was right. They really cannot make a rational decision themselves. They're living day by day, just trying to get through one day at a time. So if they can't make a rational decision themselves, like, gee, maybe I should go to detox, maybe I should get some help, that's not in their that's not in their brain right now. What's stuck in their brain is, where do I get money? Where do I find more drugs? What do I have to do? So they're doing what everyone else is doing down there, and they're robbing, they're stealing, they're, you know, and it's it's out of control. It's an absolute epidemic, and it's not going to get any better. It absolutely is a mental health issue. They need the mental health counseling. They need a place to go, and maybe a medicated place, like um, I was looking at something that um, Alberta has, and an I Recover, I think it's called, in Alberta. And they have they have a program set up there where, you know, you're, they have medically supervised detox rooms because detox is not easy. And, you know, and they know it's going to be hard, and I guess this is why there's, you know, there's not as many going to detox as what we want because they know it's, they're in for a hard road. But these are our children. Like, Amber is 30 years old. And, you know, they're all down there just going from one crack house to another crack house. Everything that they have is being stolen. We've bought winter boots and coats and gloves and hats. And, you know, I'm I'm dreading winter coming because what about she has no place to go? What about the rooms are filled again? She's going to have to sleep in, you know, in, in, in the, the garage, the parking garage again. You know, we need to get these children, our children, the mental health that they need. Now, I know everything is full. I know nothing happens overnight. And I know they don't have enough doctors. They don't have enough psychiatrists or, or, you know, or workers to help them. But we need, we need more workers. We need more places for our children to go to heal and get better and learn some coping skills, learn how to you know, to make a a decision, an adult decision, to not put themselves back in that situation again. They know they're going to lose all, a lot of their friends. They're a very close-knit group of people down there. 
my daughter Ashley has combed downtown. They all know her now. They they all know us because as a family we've been down there many times rolling down our windows and asking people and and Ashley has been in some scary situations where I've been terrified for her and she's but Mom, I have to find her. Like if we haven't heard from her, um then we you know, we'll we'll do a wellness check. We'll call the RNC and bless them. They they do what they can. Still, they usually know, they all know her, because she's a sweet, sweet girl. We'll speak to anybody, very friendly, and will help anybody. And like Ashley said yesterday, and I said, she'll give away her last puff. She'll give the clothes off her back. That's what they do. They try to take care of each other. It's just a vicious circle. The cycle is, for some, unbreakable. Uh, I'm really sorry to hear what you're going through. I'm glad you made time for the show this morning, and hopefully your daughter and everyone else out there who needs the additional supports and treatment and help, whatever the word is, I hope that we can find a way that they get it. And that requires the government to really figure this out versus just the Band-Aids and piecemeals that have been brought forward because they're only scratching the very surface. Uh, Annette, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Patty. And, and, you know, I just need everybody to know that um, they're not just crackheads. People drive by and they see them sat down on the sidewalk and they're like, you know, they're not just crackheads. These are, are our children and they're lost and they need our help. And, you know, fentanyl is there and it's killing, killing our children. And it's definitely a roller coaster. So, I mean, it's great that they have, um, you know, these places set up uh, down there to give them clean needles and, and, you know, clean supplies and whatever else, you know, that they need. And the naloxone kits, that's, that's wonderful. But again, it's, 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 it's Band-Aids. It's, I'm not going to say enabling them, but it's keeping them there longer because they don't have to go too far for some clean supplies. So, I mean, it's it's wonderful that they're giving them those supplies, and that's great. And everyone is getting trained in how to use these kits. But are we enabling them too much? Like where, where you know, is there a, a fine? I know it's a fine line between helping them stay clean and get clean equipment and supplies, but are we enabling them too much? I mean, you know? That's what, that's what I don't I don't know. I don't know, and because that's a very loose definition of what that actually constitutes, and it's different for different people. So yeah. that's where the complexity makes it not. It's not easy. Nobody has all the answers, sir. I certainly no, don't have them. No. I don't know where the real solution lies. All I know is what we're doing isn't working, and I don't it's know not. if anyone does think it's working. And if so, I'll welcome their call. But I can't understand that concept because it's quite demonstrably proven. There's more drugs. There are more dangerous than ever more people are dying than ever before because
because of these zombie-creating synthetic drugs that are more more addictive, more dangerous than ever before in history, to just pretend that all we got to do is shut down all the ports and airports and Marine Atlantic, all of a sudden we confiscate all the drugs. The drug trade is relentless. They are innovative. They're crafty. They're criminals. They won't stop. Every time we see some, the backfill is right behind it. Every time we arrest someone, find them guilty, incarcerate them, their backfill is right there before the judge's ruling is even read aloud in the courtroom. So there's something has to change. Annette, I appreciate your time. I wish you and your family nothing but the best. Thank you so much, Patty, and I really appreciate you uh, taking my call and uh, everybody listening. You're always welcome. Have a great day. You too, Annette. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Final word goes to line number five. Say good morning to John Harris. He's the Director of External Affairs at Munsu. That's the Students' Union, of course, at Memorial University. John, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How's it going? Best kind, you? Pretty good, pretty good. Yeah, so I just wanted to call in about the comments made by the the minister suggesting that they put a a cap on international students. I think that that statement is is not what will work for Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, We need to grow our province. We have an aging population. We need to have new people uh, moving here and stimulating the economy. And putting a cap on international students because of a housing crisis is not the direction forward. We need more housing. Uh, I, I think that it's it's clear. I mean, I feel everybody in Canada is experiencing this housing crunch right now. But uh, according to people polled by the internationalization office who are coming uh, internationally, 30% don't have accommodations when it comes to when it's coming to this September. So uh, we're, we're going to be in a crunch for sure. Of course we are. And curiously, the housing minister, federally, Sean Fraser, is coming on the show tomorrow. That's where we're starting. Because uh, I've said this many times, I'll say it again to your ear, is that when we talk about the impact that newcomers have on housing, and it's there's many moving parts, different factors that complicates the housing issue, to start with the cap on international students just sounds like one of the strangest places possible to start talking about housing issues and immigration. I mean, if we're talking about skill shortages and younger immigrants bringing along their skills and their drive, determination, advanced degrees, my goodness, why are we starting with international students? It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's very, very short-sighted. I mean, I I think we need to start taking an honest look at the the amount of of Airbnbs in in the city. Uh, We have about 800 properties that, you know, may make sense to have some uh, Airbnbs for a city, but what, what we're seeing is that hotels are becoming permanent homes for, say, the Ukrainian refugees, and then homes are becoming hotels uh, with Airbnbs. And we don't, you know, we have these 800 units, some, one of which is uh, one company owns about 43 properties in the area. So it's not always, you know, mom and pop Airbnbs. Well, what we need is for people to take a look and maybe. Uh, open up your house that was an Airbnb for the uh, students that are coming in for the fall. Uh, and then when summer rolls around, it can be an Airbnb again. But uh, I think we need to be honest on how we're going to grow this province. And, and that's through uh, things like international students, through immigration. But we can't build our province if we don't have the homes to for people to live in. Last one before we run out of time. Your thoughts. So if we're talking about a certain segment of newcomer being international students, as opposed to a private property owner that chooses to have their property as an Airbnb, a short-term rental, whatever the case may be, should not the onus be on the school 
to accommodate housing needs for international students or someone who comes from Gander or someone who comes from Hopedale? Shouldn't that be the school's responsibility? I mean, we're, we're, we're in regular conversations with the, the, the residents. Uh, they, they have, you know, a waiting list for, for, for all their houses now. Um, there's, we would love to see a, a housing court, an off-campus housing coordinator at the university as well to assist with this kind of things. Uh, and unfortunately, it, it's uh, gotten to the point where students don't really know where to turn and they're going to be showing up here in September. I think we're going to hear a lot more about this, Patty. I think that we're going to see a lot of folks in, in some rough situations when they get here. And uh, I just really hope that we can, you know, come together. And I, I also want to make a comment about the, you know, the premier seems to be completely offloading this to the federal minister. I, I think that all levels of government need to be investing more in housing and, and taking this seriously. And, and I want to show, I want, I want to see some real, uh, you know, uh, impacts being made by, by all levels of government. Yeah, it's not one level or another. You're absolutely right. It's all three. I appreciate the, uh, the time, John. You've had the last word. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Have a good Bye-bye. one. You too. John Harris, uh, Director of External Affairs at Monsoon. All right, good show today. Whew. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.